Kiefer's a guy who's doing his part to talk about why he thinks that games are art and gush over things that are near to our hearts, so let's select a game and press start. Percy Bysshe Shelley was an English poet during the Romantic movement of the early 19th century. Though not famous in his very brief lifetime, Shelley's work had endured across the centuries as a radical and revolutionary, both in artistic and political pursuits. I wanted to read one of Shelley's poems at the top of this episode, specifically one of his most famous works, Ozymandias, originally published in 1818. In writing, it is recognizably a 14-line sonnet meant to be read in iambic pentameter, but one that forgoes many of the conventions of the form. Similarly, The Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, pushes the boundaries of the medium and our understanding of it. And though I won't go into detail now, the content of Ozymandias intersects with some of the ideas presented in Breath of the Wild, as well as the discussions we have about art in this episode. I do find it necessary to provide a bit of context, though. Shelley was a radical in his time, expelled from Oxford in 1811 and estranged from his family for publishing and distributing his essay, The Necessity of Atheism, to the heads and bishops of the university. He was also a vocal critic of the monarchy, advocating for a redistribution of their wealth and for an end to aristocracy. In 1888, more than 60 years after his death, Eleanor Marx, the daughter of Karl Marx, who wrote works such as The Capital and The Communist Manifesto, famously antagonized members of the Shelley Society for celebrating his work while downplaying the political aspects of it. Eleanor Marx went so far as to claim Shelley as a socialist, refusing to allow his works to be watered down by bourgeois fans impressed by his lyricism but intimidated by his prose. Shelley embodied the revolutionary in the art form. His work is defined by its defiance to establish norms, whether those norms are that of the aristocracy or the structure and meter of a sonnet. Before I read this sonnet, I have to emphasize that I am as much of a poet as a Psych 101 student is a licensed therapist. I am not disciplined, nor am I an expert in the art of reading it out loud. Poetry is an art form traditionally consumed in two ways, written and spoken. Shelley, like many in the Romantic movement, believed in the importance of the imagination. As such, he intended much of his work to be read, not performed. However, I do not believe my reading of it will diminish the legacy of his work secured in the 200 years since his death. Without further preamble, Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in a desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
Hello, and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and with me today is an incredible friend and guest. They are the co-host of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a podcast centered on the Lord of the Rings films. Please welcome Emily. Emily, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on this. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm super excited, too. This is like the big one to me. Our very first guest on the show was your co-host, Manu. (laughs) (laughs) So having you on the show is also long overdue. Thank you so much for making time for me tonight because it's a weeknight for me here as it is where you live in Scotland. So (laughs) again, thank you very much. But before we get started, what do you do and what do you like? Uh, we'll start with it. We'll start with the nicer one, which is what I like, uh, which is right now I'm going through like a phase of being into like the super lowbrow and the super highbrow. Um, so my partner Connor is really into his Arnie movies. Uh, so we've obviously been watching all of the Arnie movies. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I've been like getting really into being like, this is the stuff that makes people people like it is the explosions it is the like loud rock and roll music. This is what makes humanity what it is. And then like violently oscillating to like trying to force myself through like fucking Keats or whatever and being like, this is actually it. Like it is the the purity of man or whatever nonsense. <laughs> um, so so that's the the stuff that I like. Uh, having very split ideas on on what good is uh, and what I do is uh, well. Uh, we'll put it in the nice way where uh, I'm a wage slave eight hours a day for uh, a lovely tech company uh, where I have lots of fun and don't understand anything that's happening around me. Uh, and then I spend the other sixteen hours uh, a day. Uh, simultaneously doing nothing at all and like organizing with (laughs) Republican and socialist groups (laughs) as you do for fun. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Editor Kiefer here. Just to clarify for our American listeners who have a different understanding of what a Republican is. Scottish Republicans are advocates for Scottish independence from the United Kingdom. They share no ideological resemblance to the American Republican Party. I look forward to talking to you about video games and your relationship with them. But first, I do also want to address this highbrow, lowbrow dichotomy <laughs> that you're doing. What is your favorite Arnie movie you've been watching lately? And you know what? I was actually like really surprised uh, by Terminate, like the first Terminator. Really? Um, yeah, because I got shown Terminator 2 first. And that was sold as like, this is the big action movie. This is like the the kind of movie that cemented action movies is great. Um, and then we went back and watched the first terminator and i was like this is the best thing i've ever seen it yeah. is so brilliant and so spooky and like the like stop motion terminator skelly at the end like like i heard the angels singing i felt myself grow closer to god like it was fucking phenomenal i loved it both terminator movies are great all timers to me i couldn't tell you which one i prefer i always reflexively say two because it is just like the action film yeah but to that end i do like Terminator as a kind of horror film more than I like films like Halloween, which I love. Mm. I'm putting that out there because I don't (laughs) want people to at me saying that, what do you don't look John Carpenter's my dude. Don't worry about it. But (laughs) no, I'm super stoked for you. There was somebody who said something recently about how skeletons are never really the main baddie in anything. Like they're always kind of like, like a mid boss or something like that. And never the main event to anything. (laughs) And to that, I reply, I mean, Terminator. They yeah. are skeletons, and yeah. there's that stop-motion skeleton that they fight at the end. 
Yeah. And, and to like brilliant effect as well. Cause like, I think it's got that thing where like alien is the horror and then aliens is the action one. And like, I actually think that like the, the aliens, the alien gets powered up like substantially between alien and aliens. But I think it, the terminators get powered. I mean, I know they're technically like leveled up, but I feel like they get powered down between terminator one and terminator two purely on the basis that you get the spooky, scary skeleton shot in Terminator 1, which is, like, so pure Halloween. Mm-hmm. Not ha- not John Carpenter's Halloween, but, like, the tis the season Halloween. And, like, just, like, a what if we took something super hokey and actually, like, scared you senseless? And it rocks. It's just perfect. Yeah, I love them both. And James Cameron does Terminator 1 and 2 and uh, Aliens. So maybe he just doesn't understand power scaling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe that. That's Avatar 2 for you. Yeah. This is going to be a very fun first episode for a lot of people because they're like, why are they talking about what does this have to do with anything? I don't know. But <laughs> let's talk about some more stuff that is in video games for a second. I need to address some recent events. Oh, firstly, the death <laughs> of Queen Elizabeth II, R.I.P. Bozo. As I said a mere three episodes ago, I wouldn't ordinarily bring up the death of a former world leader at the top of a video game podcast, but it is somehow relevant to video games because of the following tweet from Nintendo UK on September 12th. (laughs) Quote, as a mark of respect during this period of national mourning, we will not live stream tomorrow's Nintendo Direct. It will be published as a video on demand on our YouTube channel at 1600 tomorrow. Now, this tweet baffled everybody, as everybody knows the royal family prefers PlayStation. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it has since become apparent why this thing was uh, bizarrely made. And it's because they didn't want the news of GoldenEye 007 coming to the Switch online overshadowed the death of a cousin fucker. (laughs) No, no. Okay. All right. Fine. Sorry. (laughs) The real reason is likely because of the announcement at the very end of the broadcast, the upcoming Breath of the Wild sequel, specifically its title, which was just revealed this morning, my time, this afternoon, your time, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Oh, I hadn't made that connection. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, my God. (laughs) The two weeks between this episode being recorded and this coming out, it's going to be done to death in the ground. So you'll have. Yeah. I'm, we are no longer in the zeitgeist as of the minute I hit stop recording. <laughs> yeah, no. R.I.P. Bozo, Legend of Zelda, <laughs> Tears of the Kingdom. You actually messaged me before the D- Nintendo Direct started asking if we were going to address the Nintendo Direct. <laughs> and I said, probably not. And now the answer is absolutely yes. Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about this trailer at the very end here to make sure you keep listening. Please don't fast forward. <laughs> But now we are actually going to get into the video games. So there's perhaps no community um, that gatekeeps more than gamers. <laughs> after all, we need to talk about your gaming history and your relationship with gaming. What is that like? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. So I'm about to like break down the gatekeeping because in some ways, I think I'm like the absolute worst person in the world for this episode. And also in some ways, probably like a good option because mm-hmm. I was not a gamer and I have never really been a gamer. Uh, like I was definitely kind of on the Nintendo side of the console wars in the early 2000s insofar as I had a Game Boy Advance and a GameCube and those were like my kind of daily drivers but like the things that I was daily driving on both of those were literally Pokemon and Animal Crossing and and that's all I played until I got a PS2 sometime in the mid 2000s and discovered Ratchet and Clank and 
um warhawk which is a which is like a first person shooter absolutely nobody remembers now Mm -hmm. Um, and then got a playstation 3 because it had a blu-ray player in it and it was cheaper than getting a blu-ray player where i lived at the time Um, Mm -hmm. and just kind of didn't really play video games for for a very long time because i was like if if it isn't kind of something as like mindless to me as like the knights of the old republic games which i also loved uh, as a as a kid or if it wasn't as kind of like soothing and kind of childlike as uh, animal crossing or or pokemon that i was like i'm too stupid for this <laughs> and kept up that charade for like 20 well 19ish years and my first actual kind of foray into like video gaming proper the first game that convinced me that like i could both play games and be interested in them was breath of the wild and that was in I think 2018 that I got my hands on it for the first time. So almost nothing until Breath of the Wild is the answer to that one. Like you said, this is a weird pick because Breath of the Wild means so much to so many people. And relative to a lot of incumbent video game players, we'll say, (laughs) you aren't as storied with your history of gaming. It's all over the place. And that actually makes me super excited because I love those stories. I love the exceptions. I love the change, like the things that, you know, cause that shift in people's minds i also want to call out the fact that you said knights of the old republic and kind of pointed to that as a mindless game when was the last time you played that game okay so so in my defense Mm -hmm. like (laughs) i had it spoiled for me before i played it in 2000 fuck 2004 yeah it came out in like 2003 so i haven't played it in about two years but it Mm -hmm. was definitely like one of these things where i went into it kind of at age six or whatever knowing the twist right and then I was just like, okay, so it's just a Star Wars shooter to me. And I recognize that this is nobody's experience of Knights of the Old Republic at all. But unfortunately, I have some weird brain poisoning. <laughs> so there is that. I, was, I wasn't I was even necessarily referring to the story part of it. It's just kind of like the combat in that is so... <laughs> it's, a D- <laughs> it's a D20 system. Yeah. Like you, you're, you're playing D&D with Star Wars. So it's um it's just interesting to see that be called mindless where there's a lot of like, all right, let me press the pause button and figure out what my next four or so moves are going to be. Yeah. See, I think that's the kind of interesting thing because I love that combat style because one of the games that I have sunk far too much time into now is an MMO, which is Lord of the Rings Online. And that mm-hmm. has that like, it's not quite a D20 system, but it is damn near a D20 system. Um, and I like it because it has that kind of, well, like you say, the ability to pause and figure out what you're doing. But I've always thought in my head that that's kind of like cheating, I guess, compared to a lot of the other like first person shooters that I really can't play, where mm-hmm. I feel like you're actually having to keep up with it um, mentally <laughs> in a way that I can't cope with at all. So, I mean, I don't consider it cheating. I always say that if the feature is there, it's meant to be used. Yeah. And that's become like a big topic in a game that we'll discuss in a moment, Elden Ring, because I have to bring it up every episode, legally. <laughs> There are games like Final Fantasy that have Mm. the active time battle system where you have to actually wait for the meter to fill up and you have to make your move very quickly. Otherwise, the enemy might get more than one attack on you while Mm. you're figuring out your next strategy. (laughs) But games like Knights of the Old Republic or the equivalents where you can just pause on the fly and sort of figure out your next couple moves. I mean, they're they're there for a reason. So I I would not consider you somebody who is, you know, cheating in those cases. It's just (laughs) the games require a lot more uh foresight than simply yeah. pointing and shooting well this is one of the things that was always interesting for me is because i grew up like not really playing games but watching a lot of other people play games mm-hmm. um I, I have i had a friend when i was 
quite young, maybe six, seven, eight years old. So this would have been 2004-ish to 2007-ish. Their family always had like the latest Nintendo games. And so like, obviously they would always want to play like and like (laughs) fair enough i would also have not shared the game controllers either but i just remember like watching so many of the games that were like the big games then like uh, the one i remember quite distinctly is wind waker um but then there was quite a few of the kingdom hearts games i believe i think there may have been like final fantasy 7 i think and i remember sitting there and watching them play like as a you know six-year-old or whatever and being like gosh this is like a world beyond like (laughs) like how do you do this like and and the answer is like these were people who played a lot more video games than i did like they they had clocked hundreds of hours where i'd clocked one but like it just felt like that kind of thing where like you know when you watch like a really talented artist like draw or paint and you're like surely we are not like of the same species like surely you have evolved very differently to me (laughs) and like i had that feeling with it and it took me years to to kind of get over that and be like oh yeah like this is literally just if you sit there and do it enough (laughs) you will learn this thing Right. I mean, I think it's just a matter of upbringing. If you are surrounded by video games all your life, you really just sort of disregard things as second nature. Mm. But video games have gotten a lot more complicated, especially in the last 20 or so years when twin joysticks are a lot more commonplace. Mm. Do a lot more hand-eye coordination, having to control not only your character and the actions that they perform, but also with the camera, which as I realized... Uh, seeing my friends who aren't as into games as me try and keep up with me, a guy who doesn't consider himself a good gamer around other gamers, it, it is just interesting because to me it's second nature, but for them it's like this camera thing is killing me. Yeah. So I, I, I empathize with that. It's also the thing of like video game logic, which like I, I is a phrase I've kind of been saying a lot lately. Um, I, I've been my mom recently, God, God bless her, uh, has decided to get into Lord of the Rings Online, uh, mm-hmm. and she's never played a video game before. I mean, she's clocked like a thousand hours in Animal Crossing, but that's very much kind of its own like you know internal ecosystem, and there's not really the the same kind of video game logic like in terms of puzzles and the way that you would handle cameras or the way that you would handle movement or th- even just thinking about the sort of narratives within a video game Um, and and I've been trying to teach her how to play it and there are so many things where I'm like I'm having to kind of stop and be like you can't explain it like this because this isn't as self-evident as you think it is mm-hmm. um and you know it was it was something that i i hadn't really clocked but like things like accepting quests or knowing that you don't need to take every quest or you don't need to to do every single thing in a video game to still experience the video game that right. to me seems so obvious but she lives in a world where when you read a book you read every page of the book when you watch a movie you watch every second of the movie she's got no frame of reference for you pick and choose what parts of the the sort of like piece of art that you actually like engage with and and i was having to slow myself down and be like there's a whole world a whole language of like video games on like video game narratives that that is a second language even to people like me who are not like quote unquote gamers Mm -hmm. that like for so many people just seems totally foreign and and like trying to explain that to people when you are not like a registered english as a or video games as a second language instructor like is quite the trip yeah no i mean there's a literacy that many modern games require you to just sort of understand and that's the sort of question with like the in terms of accessibility these features exist because not everybody plays video games as a hobby sometimes people just want to check out one specific thing and like in the case of your mother she wanted to play lord of the rings <laughs> online and an mmo on top of everything else 
there's so many moving parts to that experience that you cannot teach all at once. So there needs to be like sort of crash courses in terms of just helping people understand what a video game is, the limits and the possibilities in that space. Because like you said, a lot of people see things as start to end. And that makes sense considering that the a lot of the early video games are just one screen of action that you're playing out in Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and even Super Mario Brothers where you're just scrolling across the screen. Now there's 3D spaces. Now there's, you know, so many tasks that can be performed. You don't have to do every task, like you say, to reach the end state unless you're playing Super Mario Sunshine. Ha, burn. <laughs> anyway, but I, I really appreciate this discussion. And I do think that's why I like getting to the root of this podcast is just because so many people have varying levels of video games, video game experience, I should say. All the people I have on the show have like defining experiences with one and that sort of recontextualizes their relationship with the medium. Mm. It's an art form. And just like how poetry, you have to, there's a learning curve for understanding not even just the rules of it, but also the lack thereof. Mm. Same applies to video games. So I do want to ask, what have you been playing lately? And are there any games new or old that you're looking forward to playing? Ah, so, so this is interesting. So I'm always playing Lord of the Rings online. I will, you, you know, that's kind of the thing that I will go clock a couple hours. And if I've got free time, mm -hmm. I've been desperately trying to play Elden Ring. Um, and, and this is where the, the accessibility chat is kind of interesting because I, I have a, like a very interesting and kind of weird visual impairment called nystagmus and um, which basically means that like there's there's a muscle that controls movement in your eyes um, and that muscle in my eyes is like a millimeter off of where it's meant to be so my eyes shake um, and so I have like issues with visually and neurologically managing motion it, it, mm -hmm. uh, like whether it's on a tv screen or whether it's actually in front of me uh, so video games have always been a kind of very difficult thing especially free moving cameras uh, and like the super stylized cameras that I think are quite trendy now that uh, we've moved on from like 2D games. And so I've been trying to force myself through Elden Ring. And, and that is it having the kind of dual like <laughs> battle for me of like, the camera is very difficult. Um, I mm -hmm. just bought a, a, you know, six or so months ago, I bought my first gaming PC. And so I'm learning how to like, be a gamer on a PC after a whole lifetime of like a pseudo console kind of gaming experience. So right. managing the managing the PC, managing the camera, and then also managing learning how to play a Souls game, which I am now realizing is maybe the worst possible like inroad into like the kind of more heavy <laughs> video games out there. Cause I'm like, you know, I got uh two seconds into Elden Ring past the tutorial and saw that golden knight sob like wandering around and my brain locked onto it like a hellfire missile and was like if i don't defeat this guy within five minutes like this game is worthless to me and right. so i just keep throwing myself at it over and over and over and i've been doing this for like eight weeks now <laughs> so. Yeah, so you're still you're still fighting the tree sentinel right outside yeah. of the okay no i get that i think it is a game that challenges a lot of people's preconceived notions as to what a video game is and it is, and I understand why you want to play it though, because not only is it sort of a spiritual uh, successor to the game that we're talking about today, but mm. it also evokes intentionally evokes a lot of imagery from the works of Tolkien, which sort mm. of brings me to my next point. You are the world's foremost Tolkien scholar, as evidenced <laughs> by your podcast and what you discuss on Twitter. At the very, hey, hey, at the very least, you're the only Tolkien scholar I give a fuck about. Hey, thank you. All right, yeah, but. I want to talk to you a little bit about that relationship and mm. with video games specifically. I do have some questions about Lord of the Ring video games in a moment. Mm. What drew you to Elden Ring and 
was Tolkien a part of that? Ah, so so yes and no and yes. Um, so like the Elden Ring kind of pitch for me was this is Breath of the Wild if Breath of the Wild had read the Silmarillion. Um, okay. But like the context for this is I basically don't really care about the Silmarillion. Like I do. I think the Silmarillion is a great piece of writing. I think it's really interesting as a cultural artifact. I like some of the stories in it, but it's never been my like key kind of work within Tolkien's body of works. So having something pitched to me with the very, very good point of this is like Breath of the Wild and the slightly middling point of if it had read the Silmarillion was like, if this description is accurate, I absolutely have to see this thing for myself. And if this description isn't accurate, then hopefully it will lean more towards the Breath of the Wild side and it'll be great. (laughs) (laughs) And I was also listening to a podcast, a a great podcast uh, called The Worst of All Possible Worlds. And uh, they did uh, a couple of an episode, actually a single episode on the other souls games i think it was all of the rest of them Um, and i had Mm -hmm. no context because i'd never really played it before and i was listening to the kind of like depth of despair that quite a few of the hosts were like working themselves up to in pursuit of like justifying a game that is as difficult as the souls games are and i was like that sounds like me trying to justify why i spend so much time reading some of this absolute like bullshit about J.R. tolkien and like if this is the level of like reckless sick of fancy this game inspires then like <laughs> i might as well give it give it a whirl it is very like self-inflicted pain to a level so <laughs> yeah. it is very much like if it had read the silmarillion in the point that it's like it's not as much as a joyful experience as it is like a I did it experience for a lot of <laughs> <Yeah>. people. In <laughs> moments more. I do think it is legitimately my favorite game of the year and one of my favorite games of all time. Mm. Uh, but to your point, there are a lot of people that cannot enjoy uh, the things that, in my opinion, make it great because of either limitations with the language of video games, uh, disability, or just sort of a lack of general tutorial or direction. And mm. that is up to the game to sort of set the parameters for some of those things. When does the line between player struggle and and you know developer foresight, hindsight, and consideration begin? Mm. This is a becoming a situation that I haven't really talked much about on the podcast, but it is something I believe in that video games need to have resources available to people with visual and physical impairments mm. and mental impairments as well. So they are able to enjoy games on a level if we want them to be appreciated for what they are. We have subtitles for, you know, things with audio. Yeah. Things like this is a Nintendo game we're going to be talking about later. They don't do the very bare minimum for accessibility, despite having conceptually some of the most um, in on in on paper, having some of the most friendly, like this is your first foray into this genre. So it's 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 contradictory. What do we need to do? And it's becoming a more and more complicated question as this Mm. game becomes more and more complicated. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I found really interesting about like the discourse around this is there's been um, like there's been a lot of good work kind of separating the like question of because I think a lot of like accessibility chat, especially by people who are like both not disabled and also kind of on the younger end of these things um, gets mashed up into like everything should be cheery all the time. Right. And, and like it, it's always kind of funny for me as someone who is like both like very frustratingly disabled and also very into just like feeling like shit every time I turn on the TV or like read a book. Like mm-hmm. I, I crave the like catatonic 
depression that these things can give to me. Um, seeing a lot of the like kind of younger, less not less expert, but but kind of less experienced chat around accessibility from people um, who are like, you know, the tone of video games should change because if a video game makes you feel bad all the time, it, it's inaccessible. And then seeing the far more interesting and I would say far more better uh, writing, far more better Christ, uh, far better writing uh, from, you know, various sort of video game critics being like, keep it as depressing and awful as humanly possible, make people's eyes bleed, but give them the accessibility settings like the difficulty sliders or whatever to to, to basically work their way through the game um, without having to do sort of any of the level checks. And I think this is such like a fascinating kind of separation of like the, the kind of, yeah, I guess the function of a, a, an art form from its form, um, which is something that I feel like I'm constantly going on and on and on about with like J.R.R. Tolkien, which is like you can find ways to make things quote unquote easier um, or more accessible without fundamentally changing the like form of what that thing is. And Mm -hmm. like have seeing those conversations play out, like in terms of video games where like the, what the function is, is so much more tangible because you're literally doing things inside of it instead of just reading is I think probably one of the most like fruitful um, and, and kind of worthwhile discussions going right now. And I always think it's kind of such a shame that like, it doesn't really seem to break into the mainstream beyond like mainstream kind of video game chat. Right. There's a lot of discourse always going on that <laughs> is in bad faith or intentionally reductive, either because of the form the discourse is being presented in or because aforementioned bad faith. There's just a bunch of people always trying to throw flashbangs into complicated conversations by making it uh, either personal or just misunderstanding the point. In Mm. the event, like in your instance, you're alluding to a lot of the question of taste not being a matter of disability. The form of something, like you said, if I'm misinterpreting anything you say, please yell at me. But (laughs) the form of something isn't necessarily the problem to people with disabilities and that can be infantilizing to even suggest Mm. that in many instances but how they're able to approach even consuming such a work is the the, the main issue it it, is a very complicated conversation and i would love to have that conversation all day and i would love to have experts and just people who have personal experience with these things on my Mm. show this is an open invitation for any people who have anything to that point but do you have anything else that you want to say about the subject or should we move forward um, I, I think the one thing that I would say, actually, and this was kind of a funny conversation I was having where I noticed that Elden Ring had um, one or two settings that I was quite surprised by in terms of accessibility. And I was like, oh, wow, like, I can't believe they put that in that. It's actually really great for someone like me. Um, and then having my partner, Connor, go, uh, no, that, that's not a disability thing. It's for people with shittier computers. And no. and, and realizing, actually, that like the, the overlap between making things accessible for people who cannot afford to spend 700 pounds on a graphics card every three months and making it accessible for people like me who can't see things like moving too quickly without like spewing everywhere is is pretty much like a it is a circle of a venn diagram and like just because like some of these accessibility settings may be kind of discussed most prominently in terms of like uh disabilities and in lots of cases disabilities that are not super common and doesn't mean there's not actually a massive benefit for literally everybody on the basis of number one fighting against like the kind of sort of half planned obsolescence that goes on with a lot of tech but number two Mm. just enabling people to reuse like the the either the consoles or the computers that they've had sitting around for ages and have as much fun as the people who are dropping 10k in bitcoin or whatever uh, on a new computer every couple of months and like 
it, it is a is a thing that will benefit everybody, all video game players, like regardless of their ability status. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're hitting a greater point here where where does the conversation of accessibility begin naturally in our minds and what can we do to sort of make that as all inclusive as possible? In the case of video games, accessibility was sort of a, you know, obviously profit motivated in the sense of what very small, unintrusive features can we integrate that would make more people able to play this game, whether that's being able to reconfigure the controls um, or changing mouse sensitivity, uh, being able to change something from first person to third person, turning off, um, toggling things on and off, such as um, motion blur. Mm, yes. Or just graphically demanding features in general that can be visually distracting for people. And then those things eventually become accessibility features for a lot of people. Like for a lot of people, motion blur is just something that causes disorientation and is an absolute hindrance. Mm. And then it sort of becomes logical that you would start integrating additional accessibility features from there. But there's some sort of like, again, a lot of people just having a reflexive resistance to anything remotely resembling progress. The idea of accessibility is kind of one that is has to be made on an individual level rather than on like some sort of societal level, mm. as is the case for profit motivation. <laughs> uh, so Nintendo, for example, they don't integrate a lot of accessibility features into their games, which make games that are even conceptually easy to play on paper extremely difficult because even basic features like being able to remap buttons on your controller so people with carpal tunnel or anything else would be able to play your games more easily or just designing controllers that make it easier for people with some sort of disability to play them. But then there's also games like The Last of Us Part Two. We're going to push past the discourse of that game for a second on a plot level and just talk about, <laughs> talk about the actual accessibility features of that game, which are the most robust of possibly any game ever to the point that people with complete visual blindness can play these games because of the audio feedback that it gives you. So many, just so many robust features that I can't even get into, and I would encourage any listeners to look up to see what I mean. It, it, it's it's a personal choice matter, mm. and that's that's a problem. There should be standards, or there should be at least like a strong call to set expectations to these developers and publishing companies, so that as many people can engage with these games as possible. Yeah, at least on a controller level, we can't yeah. do anything about tone. We can't do anything about taste. <laughs> and the question of difficulty in a video game is always going to be a hot button issue. But we can at least make the very simple demand that you should lower as many barriers to accessing your art as possible. Yeah. And I think one of the things is like, it maybe is, is an issue of the this kind of weird position that video games are in right now, where like, they are kind of caught between being seen as art and not being seen as art. Um, and, and so I get why there's kind of a defensiveness from video game devs to kind of be like, this is the way that I as an artist have crafted this game, and it must stay this way. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the things that like, you know, I, I've been spending a lot of time kind of propagandizing, actually reading like the Lord of the Rings books to people. Um, and one of the ways that I, I've had to kind of go around like doing this propaganda campaign is like not everyone wants to sit down and read a book um and like not everybody has the time to so there like there had to be for me other ways to kind of pitch getting access to this material to people and i have found and i will swear this under oath or whatever that like J.R.R. tolkien's writing is as effective uh and powerful like through audiobooks as it is 
in in just sort of standard you know paperback writing and i think that's one of these things where nobody would think twice about well i guess some people do think twice but those people are idiots and should be ignored. <laughs> uh, but like there is an incredible validity to to the audiobook as as a way of engaging with literature realistically there's not really any reason for for people to think down on that and so adding in these accessibility settings is not about lessening the the, the sort of artistic merit of a video game or or decreasing its sort of validity as an art form it's about testing it and and kind of proving it in all of the myriad ways that that other forms of art are tested and proved maybe a weird bone to pick with nintendo but like i always crack up because i've got tiny baby hands my hands are ridiculously small and i can't hold the switch pro controller because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so fucking massive and i'm like no part of any of the nintendo games experiences would be ruined for me by having a controller that fit my fucking hands but like right. there is this fear of doing anything that would make anything seem like kind of uh, kind of squishy around the edges or up for negotiation because everybody is so worried about whether or not their video game will be treated as art but like things like breath of the wild things like elden ring i think prove like without a shadow of a doubt that that video games are art and so now that we've confirmed this like let's go ahead and start doing the things that will like actually get this on par with the other art forms which is obviously increasing accessibility to them yeah increasing accessibility to it for sure for one and also sort of changing the lifestyle brand of gaming so it's um a little less fratty um So many people joke, and they are absolutely correct in saying this, that one of the biggest barriers to video games being perceived culturally as a form of art are the people that play them. And that is very, 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 very true. But you also end up watching like things like video game awards shows or seeing a lot of E3 conferences that are intentionally trying to hype this up like it's like an energy drink, like a lifestyle brand, like a fashion item, an accessory, and... You can't do that. And then also like sort of somberly say, and here's the trailer for Journey or something like that. (laughs) It's one of the grim things, I think, where like kind of consumption has become sort of analogous with like an identity. And there's like Mm -hmm. a much wider conversation to be had around all of this. But like um, the, the kind of gamer aesthetic is almost more important to your average gamer now than video games, which is funny because when I was growing up, all of the gamers that I knew were like girls who are now gay and like girls who are now boys. <laughs> like, and that was like, that was the core constituency. It was not this like animal house nonsense. Like the, I guess Belushi's kind of a dated reference here, but like the, like, I, I don't even know the Andrew Tate as I think the fella, uh, like the, it's not the Andrew Tates of the world that were like kind of the, the, the driving force for, at least for me behind like, an interest in um, video games. It was the people that the the current gamer aesthetic uh, kind of shuns, and yet it is those people that the gamer aesthetic shuns that I would put a lot of money down are probably actually like supporting, like for example, the indie uh, game developers and, and kind of keeping the the video games industry like both alive and vibrant in a far more interesting way than the like gormless rubes who are like kill Laura Bailey or whatever it is the last of us two stuff was <laughs> yeah that the, the gamer gates of the world yeah people fighting against the idea of having to share their hobby with people because of political reasons <laughs> that they have but putting that political stigma on them anyway uh, <laughs> and it is it is again it is definitely something perpetuated by groups of gamers but it is also you know this this almost very commercial thing it's perpetuated by these big gaming companies who wants to 
hype it up as one thing and sort of like not make it seem artistic, trying to make it seem fun and trying to make it seem enticing in the pursuit of money. I understand you got to get your bag, but you are also sort of, (laughs) you are sort of perpetuating the idea of this thing as like this thing, like not being good as an art form because people are just seeing like your, your call of duties and your little Fortnite dances that you're doing to sell whatever uh, Xbox branded thing you want. Um, (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. The Fortnite stuff is such a, is such kind of a stake to the heart as well, because I think like that specifically crosses over with like, kind of in you know i've never played fortnite so maybe this is me just being aggressively judgy from afar but it is kind of feels to me in some ways like the anti breath of the wild in terms mm-hmm. of like the kind of cloying kind of referentiality like the like we've got obi-wan kenobi in here now and he's flossing and oh my god now he's fighting she hulk who's also flossing and like that is like that kind of ethos seems so like so aggressively the antithesis of like everything that like for me i like in video games and like especially in a video game like breath of the wild and like seeing all of that stuff kind of come out as like uh, which it obviously is is like the marketing and pr favorites because it's so marketable it's mm-hmm. so like god black pilling i guess like i'm just gonna i'm gonna take it and i'm just gonna suffer for it yeah would you download fortnite if faramir were in it <laughs> oh boy oh maybe maybe that would be the kryptonite <laughs> wouldn't it be <laughs> I'm just I'm 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 not making fun <laughs> of you, but like we all got to hold the mirror up to ourselves a little bit. And like, yeah. I almost downloaded it for real when I saw that Obi Wan was in it. And then like I watched Obi Wan the show and was so disappointed in it that I hate <laughs> Star Wars now. So <laughs> classic. That is truly the circle of life. I'm not saying that Fortnite ruined Star Wars, but I think something really shifted in our society um, when Palpatine was sending relaying canon information about the rise of Skywalker uh, via Fortnite. I'm just saying that three months later, the COVID-19 pandemic ravaged North America. That's all I'm saying. Oh, God. I like all of that feels like a like an elaborate hallucination to me because I know all like all of those facts sequentially. I know they are real. But when you put them together, I'm like, no, absolutely not. There's no way any of that is true. This must be a lie. And never forget that they <laughs> that Palpatine in Fortnite is canon. Oh, God, help us all. Yeah, and that's probably only like the eighth or twelfth worst thing about the rise of Skywalker. <laughs> anyway, everything is a lifestyle brand now, and nothing is good. Uh, all right. Anyway, let's talk about Tolkien and video games. Way. Um, like I said, you are uh, the foremost Tolkien scholar that I care about. So many dozens of video games based off of Tolkien's books, set in the world of Middle Earth specifically. There are games based on the films. There are games based on the text. There are Lego video games, the Shadow of Mordor series, and (laughs) even an upcoming Gollum game. If Gollum was in Fortnite, I'd absolutely download it. (laughs) Have you played many of the Middle-Earth games? What games stand out as your favorites? So on and so forth. Yeah, so this is kind of my moment of shame. So so I... And no, actually, it's part partly my moment of shame, partly my moment of pride. Uh, And my moment of pride is this. Um, So about 16 months ago... um, uh during the second lockdown um i was putting off procrastinating badly my my master's dissertation and uh steam had a sale for the lego games for the lego prequels games star wars prequels games um and so me and my partner connor locked up in the house going stir crazy rammed our way through the lego prequels game which is a banging game and got to the end of it and we're like oh god what do we do now And of course, the next suggestion on Steam was Lego Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. So we played that and banged through that in about 
10 hours probably i had the time of my life and then i was like well let's watch let's do a marathon of lord of the rings and we'll like cook all of the food and stuff and it'll be great and we did that and something in my head broke like something in my brain chemistry was like irreversibly ruined and that was like the moment at which i got super into this like it was that weekend that i started reading fellowship of the ring for the first time it was that weekend that i just started going like super ridiculous about learning because i was i was in cambridge at the time so i was also like fuck that guy for being at oxford ball so this is fascinating (laughs) and so it is kind of inadvertently the the lego lord of the rings game that got me into the lord of the rings like this Uh, so that's a great game i will defend that to the death um, I have been putting off playing Shadow of War, Shadow of Mordor, although everything I hear about it sounds so absurd. I can only assume it's the best game ever made. And um, mm-hmm. so I'm very excited to eventually sit down and play that. Um, I you are disgusted have... as a Tolkien scholar, but as a gamer, you're having the time of your life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Every Everything about it. I'm like, how, who, why? Perfect. Love it. No notes. Shalabas titties. <laughs> yeah. Well, really what was missing from the Peter Jackson films, but that. True. Um, <laughs> So that one I'm excited to get around to. There's a fellowship um, book-specific game for a Nintendo GameCube, I believe, from like 2000 that I'm really keen on playing. I watched a playthrough of like the first 30 minutes, uh, and that looks phenomenal, and I can't wait to do that soon. All of these things I'm having to do, and I'm kind of putting off because I'm a little nervous. Um, but I think the best Tolkien game, and I don't think this is going to change regardless of what games I add to the list of ones that I played, uh, is The Lord of the Rings Online. There have been a couple people I've been talking to about like this game in particular and why I think it is like the best argument I've ever seen for video games as the superior like way of adapting books. I started playing that game, I don't know, about a year ago now. And I think it kind of solidified for me a, a slightly ridiculous argument, which is that I don't think books should be adapted into movies anymore. I think they should only be adapted into video games mm-hmm. and only into MMOs with like massive maps Um, and that is like that is the game when i'm like trying to explain like the level of detail that i want from like adaptations or like the level of detail that i want from anything really i'm like go look lord of the rings online this is what everything should be aiming for i mean to your point how many european novels have been adapted into video games and became massive critical and financial successes you have stalker uh you have the witcher series you have the metro series like it, it, it works if you have the right uh approach and if you have like the right passion and the visual language now i want to ask you about uh lotro specifically mm. uh, lord of the rings online number one like what do you like about it as a video game experience and number two what do you like about it as an adaptation of tolkien's work yeah so so i think the things that i like about it are largely the things that relate to the things that i like about breath of the wild and i and this is probably because breath of the wild was like the game that opened up games for me the lord of the rings online for people who don't know is is an mmo it launched in 2007 making it 15 years old now it follows the book canon of the lord of the rings not the movie canon and is like i think one of the biggest video game maps out there so it covers all of middle earth so far from I don't know how to do this, Erdlund, which is like the very far northwest of the the map where where uh, Thor and Oakenshield, where his people are based, if you've seen the Hobbit films or read the book, um, mm. and all the way down to the very, very far southwest, uh, southeast rather, of Gondor and Athelion, um, and everything in between. There's Mirkwood, there's Erebor, there's Rohan, there's the Shire, there's everything is there. It's massive. So, so that in and of itself, I think, is a big appeal for me because it is like a monumental game. Um, it is just enormous and there's so much that's in it. It's got this incredible longevity to it because it's not trying to do 
by virtue of it being an MMO and not really being able to do like a thing, like do the highest powered graphics imaginable. It can't be the Jedi Fallen Order of every year um, because it needs to work <laughs> one online and with everybody's <laughs> shitty computers. Um, it has an incredible um, emphasis on like stylization over like high quality graphics. Sure. So it's beautiful. And like even the regions that were released in 2007, which largely have remained untouched since 2007, are still beautiful because it's got a really clear sense of like artistic direction and like a really clear artistic thesis, which is like one, it's inspired by a lot of the sort of the the sort of well-known and well-respected artists who, who illustrate Tolkien's works. But two, it's also looking at taking taking kind of the simple ways of, of uh like telegraphing like environment uh, this all sounds like ridiculous but like um there's a there's a little kind of motif that that repeats through all of the 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 zones the locations that i love which is the changing color of wildflowers um, mm-hmm. and you can look at the wildflowers that are just scattered throughout the grasses and get a really clear sense for like the peoples and the cultures and the region that you're in and um, and that is like an incredibly minor environmental storytelling detail and like it's not signposted anywhere in, in the game itself. Like there's no dialogue that tells you to look out for it. But like when you go through enough of the regions, you, you spend a lot of time looking at those wildflowers and you start to notice it. And that is something that I think is remarkable because first, who has the time to think of that? But also like what an impressive way of looking at like this, this form of video games and being like, how can we tell more of the story without just using dialogue? And like Breath of the Wild does that beautifully and was kind of the thing that introduced me to that. And, and Lotra, I think, does that like on its own own merits as like a as a video game that is thinking um, incredibly strategically about how to be as accessible as possible to as wide number of video game players as possible and also to ensure that it will last not just 15 years from its launch but 15 years beyond that hopefully so so that's the video game stuff that you know i think uh, is remarkable about that game uh, the Tolkien adaptation stuff is I like I cannot I cannot praise this game enough uh, like and and I do try <laughs> um, but I don't think I can reach the limits with it. It is so thoughtful. And um, one of the examples I bring up is there's a single line in uh, the Two Towers, and it's uh, it's actually like, a fair line. <laughs> for our so, listeners who don't have the video feed, <laughs> she grabbed the book the two towers and is opening it <laughs> so yeah this is this is how i uh our poor edi- uh, audio editor on my podcast my brother my captain my podcast uh definitely has to deal with me flipping through books quite a lot um but there's a bit in uh, the two towers just at the end of uh faramir's introductory chapters so it's at the end of the window on the west where he hands a staff to sam and frodo and he says a virtue has been set upon it such that it will always find its way back to Gondor. And that language of, of virtue uh, has been expanded into this massive system within the the game uh, of basically leveling up your various attributes uh, and also leveling up the attributes of the various weapons that you're allowed to use in it. And it's one of those things where like, I overthink Tolkien a lot. Like all I mm-hmm. do is overthink the Lord of the Rings. I cannot imagine ever having the sort of like immense sense of creativity to come up with something like that or the, the, the like care and conscientiousness uh, to expand a single sentence from a, effectively a throwaway chapter in the middle book and turn it into something so sprawling and that to me is like everything that is perfect about the adaptation kind of mindset of that game it is taking what's already there in the text and just expanding it into something like well beyond like anyone's wildest imagination I really like what you said there, and I don't feel the need to add on to or regurgitate anything you said because you already said it so wonderfully. So 
I'm going to move on and talk about other stuff. But Woo-hoo. thank you. <laughs> Genuinely, that was like a very thoughtful explanation about a question that I wasn't I wasn't prepared for as thoughtful an answer as that. <laughs> but it, I'm, I'm thankful for it. Genuinely. We talked about the actual games that are based off of Tolkien's work, the ones that kind of work, the ones that sort of do their own thing. Let me actually go back a little bit and talk about like the whole like that, the Lord of the Rings online thing versus um, recent adaptations of Tolkien's work post mm. Peter Jackson and now between those periods, mm. uh, including Peter Jackson himself. Um, there's something I find like really extremely fun about the Shadow of Mordor, and I understand that it's not necessarily respectful to the to the writing. Yeah. But it's kind of like, okay, this is very fun in a video game form uh, with mm. the uh, Shadow of Mordor thing where it's like almost like a like a fratty version of this story, <laughs> like the hardcore, <laughs> the dark, the violence. I think the nemesis system is genuinely one of the coolest mechanics yeah. that a video game has ever introduced. And it's so sad that it is kept under like a copyright cage <sighs> that prevents other developers from using it. But then you have Lord of the Rings Online, which is also an adaptation and has those video game sensibilities in mind. Mm. And you say it's very reverential and dedicated to that text, but not necessarily in a way that it's like, oh, we have to be to the word. Like, I think you said it earlier in a tweet about the Amazon adaptation. Is it like necessarily reverential, but like <laughs> respectful of the actual work of art itself? Yeah. Sorry if I butchered that no, know, no. sentiment that you made, but I have been thinking about a lot in the nature of adaptation and art lately in this yeah, there's just so interesting that this MMO for Lord of the Rings that's been around for 15 years is a lot more respectful without having it be the most expensive, visually impressive thing. And then we're looking at, we'll say mixed reviews huh. of uh, the Rings of Power. I know how you stand on it, and you're welcome <laughs> to, to to have the space to complain about it here as well. <laughs> I love it. It's the best show ever made. Uh, Jeff Bezos is not signing my paychecks right now at all. <laughs> <laughs> For people without the visual feed, their eyes are closed when they said that. <laughs> yeah. You know what's actually funny is is I feel like I'm not getting this kind of critique of the Rings of Power across as much, but I'm going to call it like the Shadow of Wardor critique, which is like whatever they have done in those games is obviously unhinged, but it's brilliantly unhinged. And like, um, I guess there's something about like Helm Hammerhand becoming a wraith, becoming one of the Nazgul's in either Shadow of War or Shadow of Mordor. And that's insane like is not at all canonically justifiable but it's also brilliant it's also Mm -hmm. brilliant like it's it's great like and i think that is great and it's just like kind of crazy enough that it works and that is like if you are not going to do that sort of like thoughtful um expanding upon the the source text in in a creative and like uh and and like a genuine way uh like latra does then you have to do the shadow of war shadow of mordor version of adaptation which is just just go ape shit um and like and i think like you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get into the rings of power stuff but like i think these are the two poles of adaptation and i think you have to pick one and if you get caught in the middle you're screwed but if you go one or the other you're gonna be good (laughs) no more half measures yes (laughs) no more half measures walter eking away a little bit from the actual lord of the rings itself i do actually want to linger on influence a little bit in terms of taste it's so cool to me that video games are somewhat responsible for your fixation on the works of the Lord of the Rings and <laughs> that world. Have you played any other video games that sort of evoke that kind of world that Middle Earth is without actually being like just straight up the Hobbit, mm-hmm. the video game? 
Okay, so so it's two, and both of these are one of these is reasonable, and the other is ridiculous. Um, oh, I want to hear them both, please. So, so one is obviously Breath of the Wild, uh, and like, mm-hmm. and and this is like I could I could talk ad nauseum about how much Breath of the Wild feels like a, a a riff, not even a riff, but it feels like its own kind of uh, equally strong counterpart uh, to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, the other is Stardew Valley. <laughs> oh, really? And, yes. Um, and and every so often there's a there's a post that goes viral on Tumblr, which is like someone do a mod that is Stardew Valley Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, mm. do not do that because because the, the Lord of the Rings that you want in Stardew Valley is already there in Stardew Valley. And the Lord of the Rings that exists in Stardew Valley exists in the townspeople. So like, you know, Shane, the, the, the sort of alcoholic who who's an alcoholic because of material circumstances and who is struggling through everything but actually has this ultimately this kind of heart of gold uh, and who who does have things that he is you know fascinated by or um through through penny the the kind of humble school teacher the shire folk like school teacher who sticks it out even though she probably could get bigger and better to basically take care of you know the the, these kind of future generations in in these forgotten towns and there is something about like one having those stories as part of the game but two that slow unfolding of those characters over the course of however many hours of video gameplay combined with this kind of winking sense of like we all know that this is fiction, but it's the fact that we all know that this is fiction that makes this what it is. That mm-hmm. feels very Lord of the Rings to me, and it, and it, and it's this also this combination of like you literally have to sit there and you have to wait time out. Like you can't fast travel. Well, you kind of can with the totems, but you can't really fast travel, and you have to wait out the day. And that to me is very Tolkien esque in terms of like you cannot fight time. Or you can try and fight time, but you are always going to lose. And Stardew, I think, captures that brilliantly. And it was also, in an authorial sense, uh, you know, Concerned Ape, God love him, uh, is one man fighting the world to get that thing going and to keep updating that. And that is also very much what Tolkien did, which is like in a world in which like professional authorship, certainly in the 1940s and 1950s, was changing into more of kind of brand creation. Tolkien kind of <laughs> held firm and was like, I'm going to be the wacky old guy in the forest for as long as it takes for me to write everything that I want to write. And that's very much, I think, like the concerned ape kind of model of video game development. And 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 both of those, I think, they go so hand in hand that like, I know Stardew Valley is Stardew Valley, but it also feels a little bit like the Shire. <laughs> no, I mean, you say that and then there's obviously like, I mean, very literally Stardew Valley has a weird little guy that lives in caves. And then there's also a wizard that lives in the outskirts of the town. But then there's like your actual like actual sense of you taking the philosophy of these stories, the themes and ideas and tropes within them and mapping that to Lord of the Rings in a very thoughtful way. I do a lot of similar things with my adult brain and I feel like an insane person saying, oh, well, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender and Star Wars are functionally the same story in different aesthetics. And then they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I'm like, well... <laughs> Let's start with the name Dave Filoni and then yes. we work from there. But like, <laughs> yes, excellent. <laughs> the, the, the philosophy of stories and something can resemble something without having to actually, you don't have to reference something to be clearly inspired by it. Yeah. Before we finally talk about <laughs> the game that you picked, you've talked about Lord of the Rings Online, you've talked about Knights of the Old Republic, you've talked about your relationship with Tolkien and how video games inform that. Are there any other video games that you want to talk about that mean a lot to you? Oh, I kind of skimmed over this, but the games that made me 
interested in gaming briefly before I kind of put it down again for 15 years, which which is the Knights of the Old Republic games. Um, mm-hmm. And then the games which I came back to 2015, 2016, I think. Yeah, it must have been with the, the sequel trilogy coming out. Right. Um, and those were the games where like, I kind of have this ongoing thing where I have, like, after having gentleman seed my way through high school English, like, having to learn effectively how to read again. And those games, I think, the second one in particular was kind of the first games that I played, the first kind of anything that I engaged with where I was like, oh, like, I can't actually think about these things in a way that isn't just going, like, sometimes things rhyme, sometimes things <laughs> don't. And, and being able to, like, actually engage with what the narrative is doing beyond just, like, giving facts of the plot and Mm -hmm. and both of those games i think encourage you encourage the player to think that way about video games and that is like a a a kind of brilliant and maybe i don't know i guess they are kind of rated maybe appropriately for like what they are but like in some ways i feel like that level of like teaching especially kids um how to think critically about the stories that they are being told which is pretty much the core uh ideology i guess of the knights of the old republic games is such like a brilliant thing that that probably should be uh kind of trumpeted a bit more if that makes sense (laughs) you want star wars to have ideas again yeah how dare you (laughs) you have any idea what happened how dare you you suggest that star wars be anything but star wars (laughs) play the dead speak again we'll all be fine yeah we'll be fine Thank you for talking about Night Sealed Republic. I hope that I get to talk about that at length with somebody in the future because I've been dying to talk about it since I replayed <laughs> the games recently. Oh, so good. One final question before we have no choice but to talk about today's incredible game. <laughs> this is technically the most recent game in the Legend of Zelda franchise that we're going to be talking about today. What is your relationship with other Zelda games? Which ones have you played, liked, disliked, etc.? <laughs> This is why I'm, the, I'm also kind of the worst possible person for this. I, I haven't played any of them. Um, I have played bits of Wind Waker. I've definitely watched bits of Twilight Princess and Ocarina of Time when my partner plays them, but I haven't played any of them. Um, I played, okay, I played Link's Awakening, which was great on the Switch, mm-hmm. the remaster on the Switch. That was fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, I have literally no, until I played Breath of the Wild, I only had ever watched other people play Zelda. <laughs> I mean, that's also a valid way to consume media, too, is watching somebody play a video game because you're doing all but interacting with the world at that point. I understand why you may feel awkward coming <laughs> into an episode about the most recent entry in a 36-year-old video game series and being the guest representing the game. But that's not what this is. This is about people's relationships with the game and how it defined them and how art works, in my opinion. That's what the podcast is about, the, the person who <laughs> runs it and edits it and promotes it. So I get to decide who the guests are and you can send your mail to me about it. (laughs) Well, this is, so I also kind of went with this one because I knew it would kind of twig my part. So my partner, the reason I got Breath of the Wild at all is because uh, when Connor and I first started dating, it was, it was our first Christmas together. He bought me a switch with, with uh, Breath of the Wild, which is also how I was like, yeah, I was like, all right, this is a relationship I'm staying with forever. Um, (laughs) But you know, he's a, he's a journalist, legal editor and a, and a, web developer um, and he did a lot of his first sort of major web development by setting up and running a, a fan forum for zelda games uh called zelda fan game central and then um that kind of lasted for for a long time and, and was kind of his entry into the world of 
proper sort of at scale web development. Uh, you know, he briefly did some games journalism before moving into the sort of uh, legal sphere, the Irish legal sphere. And so he's played every single game and loves the Zelda games and probably knows more about it than anyone I've ever talked to. And the one game he hasn't really finished ever is Breath of the Wild. And it is, of course, that is the one game I've actually played. And I'm like, I am going to besperch the name of Zelda uh, by only talking about Breath of the Wild and not talking about Ocarina of Time uh, or not talking about Wind Waker. And it's going to drive him nuts. Uh, and so this is my kind of rage and wrath filled uh, reason for picking that game is like, yeah, I'm the absolute kind of nightmare scenario for him. Yeah. No, I can imagine, like, imagine your partner, who you introduced this game series to, uh, is invited to go on a podcast to talk about the one game in the franchise you actually haven't finished, and they have. Yeah. So, I, I, I understand why that might chap his ass a little bit. I yeah. hope it doesn't, but um, <laughs> I think it's very fun, and I think it's very fun that I facilitated that indirectly. Hey. <laughs> Don't worry, I am the person who has played basically all the Legend of Zelda franchise. I haven't played skyward sword mm. uh, i'm getting around to it i own it on switch i love this franchise uh i think it's incredible i've said it on the podcast before but the legend of zelda majora's mask is my favorite game of all time mm. uh, i love the legend of zelda Link's awakening and that kind of is the reason i love media like twin peaks because they kind of evoke that same sort of like dream world the point is you are a perfectly great guest and i'm really excited to talk to you about this game and i'm really excited that you picked it because I was wondering who was going to pick it, and it really <laughs> threw me for a loop when it was you. And <laughs> that makes episodes like this extremely fun. So we have no reason to avoid the topic anymore. <laughs> Let's get into The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild was released on March 3rd, 2017 as a launch title for the Nintendo Switch and a crash title for the Wii U. <laughs> Other games released in 2017 include Super Mario Odyssey, Resident Evil 7 Biohazard, Cuphead, Night in the Woods, Near Automata, Prey, Persona 5, Destiny 2, PUBG, and Horizon Zero Dawn, which, no joke, was released three days before this game, Ooh. and its sequel was released a week before Elden Ring. Oh, ouch. Oh, ouch. Imagine going oh, up against ouch. two, like, industry darlings that are looking to change the face of video games, and then you're just like, here's an open world game. I like Horizon Zero Dawn 1. <laughs> I haven't played Forbidden West yet. It looks good. It's one of the games where I like I when I was trying to get my gaming PC, I was like, this is one of the games that I'm kind of hell bent on eventually playing because it looks great. It's got Lance Reddick in it. It's good. Are you familiar with any of the other games that I mentioned? OK, so uh, Night in the Woods, I played and adored. I thought that was brilliant. Just Agreed. a brilliant game. Yep. Oh, boy. I don't think any of the like I think all the rest of them I know the name of. Uh, OK. And just haven't played. <laughs> That's fine. 
Um, but it is like a stacked year for video games. Yeah. Software wise, which is why I point this out. And Breath of the Wild is my favorite of this crop of games, which does have some incredible games. I'm playing through Nier Automata right now, and that is also a very thematically heavy game. Uh, Night in the Woods is a game that wrecked me emotionally. (laughs) And Mario Odyssey and Resident Evil 7 Cuphead, they're all just damn good games. And Prey Mm -hmm. is also a very underrated game that I'm attached to, and that's why I listed it. Just some additional background on the game we're discussing today. Zelda Breath of the Wild was developed and published by Nintendo. It was directed by Hidemaru Fujibayashi director of previous Zelda games such as Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons, Four Swords, Minish Cap, Phantom Hourglass, and Skyward Sword. The game was produced by E.G. Aonuma, product manager for the Zelda series and director of games like Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, Wind Waker, and Twilight Princess. As the player, you are given minimal guidance in a massive world. You are encouraged to explore and experiment with the tools given to you at the beginning of the game to traverse the terrain and overcome obstacles. The open world design lends itself to a non-linear story structure, where major story beats can be completed in any order the player chooses. The game is a significant departure from the traditional Zelda formula, forgoing long-established staples and tropes of the franchise. It is both a back-to-basics approach, seeking to deliver on the promise of the original Legend of Zelda game with the benefit of modern technology, and also a new approach, incorporating new design philosophies and ideas to push the idea of what is possible in an open world video game. Fun fact, Takashi Tezuki, one of the designers and writers of the original Legend of Zelda, took inspiration from the Lord of the Rings novels when creating the setting. The creator of the series, Shigeru Miyamoto, was inspired by his childhood in Kyoto, where he spent much of his time exploring fields, woods, and caves. The original Legend of Zelda, which he directed, was supposed to make the player feel as though the world had limitless possibilities and countless secrets to discover. Breath of the Wild returns to that idea, builds on it, and creates something transformative in the process. This game was the last new mainline Zelda game to be released and is also the last game in the Zelda timeline as it currently stands, taking place so far ahead in the future that they do not know which of the previous games are considered to be historical or myth. (laughs) This is the end of the timeline. All events described take place after all other Zelda games. So 10,000 years before the events of this game, an advanced Hylian civilization sealed away Calamity Ganon the primal incarnation of the series antagonist Ganondorf, using the powers of mechanical weapons known as the Guardians, and the four giant mobile fortresses known as the Divine Beasts, aided by a princess and great warrior to seal away Calamity Ganon. When the threat of another great calamity emerges to destroy a Hyrule that has regressed to its medieval era technologically, the now ancient machines are excavated and a new princess warrior and four pilots for the Divine Beasts are trained to hold off the evil and fail. So you wake up 100 years later, with no memories of the past in a future that is practically untouched. It is up to Link to move the 100-year-long stalemate and save the remnants of a society that has neither advanced nor regressed in 100 years since the initial battle. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Yes. I'm so glad you got the, yeah, brilliant. I'm so glad you got that one in there as well, because that's literally something I've got in my notes that is a poem to reference. Brilliant. (laughs) Great. I'm glad we're on the same page. I think this is going to be a great episode. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to ask you this as a Tolkien scholar. That's why I'm really excited for you to talk about this game. And because I love your analysis in general, separate of that. What do you think of this game's approach to the stories of the past and the story of this game in relation to it? Like Tolkien, this is about stories on a level. Yes. Oh my God. Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, one of the things that I kind of go back and forth on is 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 the extent to which I call uh, the Lord of the Rings post-apocalyptic lit. 
I think the if there's one benefit to the Amazon show, which I don't think there will be, but if there is one benefit, <laughs> it will be um, showing what the apocalypse that precedes the Lord of the Rings is. And in both the Lord of the Rings and then also in its sort of analog and in Christian theology, uh, it's the fall of man. And the apocalypse mm-hmm. is obviously the literal apocalypse is not the fall of man, but that it has that sense of like in apocalypse lit, this is what it fulfills. So the mm-hmm. fall of the singing of Numenor in the Lord of the Rings is the thing that brings men from the height of their civilization to to the absolute trough of their sort of failure and, and their ongoing lingering failure um, and stagnation that sees uh, Gondor and Rohan where they are when, when we catch up to them in the Lord of the Rings. Breath of the Wild also starts with failure and it starts with this sense of uh, not immediate failure, but failure that is so far in the past that the grandkids of the people who suffered the failure can only really remember it at a distance, which is not to say that they're not emotional about it, but there's no time pressure on it. Link goes to sleep and wakes up and has to face a world that has one suffered an apocalypse, but has suffered an apocalypse so far in the past that everybody's moved on from it. And nobody really remembers it as an immediate issue. And and the only way that people are able to remember what that apocalypse is, is by telling each other stories about it and, and interpreting and reinterpreting it um, as they see fit. And and one of the things that I, I just love about this game is, is Cass, um, the Rito Bard. Um, <laughs> and, and getting so much of the, the sort of history of this apocalypse and and then everything that came after through song and through something that is able to be not just like marginally but exponentially more visceral and how it expresses itself literally as with the song is Mm -hmm. is perfectly Tolkien Um, I mean Tolkien does so much of his exposition through songs um, I I, I would say that there's actually probably no bit in uh, the Lord of the Rings that is as like sort of desperately sad as as Tolkien's poem about Gil Galad, which is you know Gil Galad was an elven king, and it and it goes through to talk about his defeat and and the sort of horror that is the lingering horror that, that is Mordor, and having a a bird and bard reflect that for the players in a way that you know you get this this kind of conjunction of the sad and the desperate music and the beautiful artwork that always accompanies in the kind of cutscene and the sense that like there is both a nearness. Uh, or a distance from the apocalypse, but also a, a really sort of obsessive need to record that apocalypse memory because actually it, it's really not that distant. It's actually 10 miles down the road where Ganon and Zelda are still duking it out, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of years on. And, and that is a, a remarkable and kind of needed approach to not just stories, but history. I think in a world where history is increasingly only sort of used, wielded, and kind of like a Wikipedia encyclopedia fun fact way where where it's kind of decontextualized and used as bullet points and and Breath of the Wild and Lord of the Rings alike both argue that there is like a kind of deep emotionality <laughs> to history and to stories mm-hmm. and no matter how far away you are from these events you you do still need to feel something about them um, and it's pure magic in Breath of the Wild. It is. Um, to say it less elegantly than you, because um, you put it extremely well, and I'm really excited that you have not only analysis, but like points of comparison in the works of something that means so much to you. It is a sleepy apocalypse. It's very much just the fact that evidence of this apocalypse and the circumstances needed to end this cycle of stagnation are constantly around you. They're always dealing with the divine beasts causing absolute devastation to their local environments just barely outside of their cities every single time and then if you even go out into Hyrule Field you can see from the distance just Calamity Ganon sealed away 
only by like the act of Princess Zelda, who just like made that one Hail Mary choice <laughs> that has kept things in place for mm. the past century. One razor thin thing could completely fuck the world, basically. And you are the X factor that will push it in one direction or the other. Yeah. That reflects, obviously, our real world society where we see evidence of the crumbling society happening around us. And any attempt to meaningfully address it is just met with a very decisive, shut the fuck up. (laughs) That's why these stories are incredible. Obviously, these were ideas on the mind of, of, you know, even a socially conservative author of 80 years ago. That's why I'm really glad that you picked this game so we can have conversations about this and Mm. about art and its place in how we live in the world around us. Yeah, I think one of the things that's also really interesting for me, um, it like kind of vis-a-vis the, the kind of real world analog of like, oh my god, we are living down everything that's going wrong right now, is mm-hmm. like Breath of the Wild has this remarkable thing where there is like, there is a time constraint, but there also isn't. And I think that's one of the things that, that I love the most about the game is that there is a definitive endpoint, kind of, and that you do have to eventually fight Ganon. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not constantly breathing down your neck, except in that kind of ominous... Um, it's kind of like it follows almost. Um, but if the mm-hmm. if the the kind of thing that follows and it follows was following at a mile back instead of like a couple hundred meters at most, where it's kind of like there is an urgency to it, but it's only the urgency that you put on it yourself. And I love like all of the memes in the subreddit where it's like Zelda is dealing with Ganon. Meanwhile, Link is eating his 50th cooked mushroom of the day and pushing <laughs> boulders around. And I'm like, that is the brilliance of it, right? Because like- right. There is this ability to choose at what point you act and at what point you don't. And I feel like so many video games are like, you don't get the choice of when to act. You you act when the video game tells you to. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But like having that freedom is almost like a kind of MBTI personality test in a way. And it is uh, just a marvel at the way they've been able to kind of implement that sense of urgency without forcing you to do anything except for when you want to do it. Let's jump ahead a little bit. And I want to sort of address that kind of sentiment you made about the open-endedness of this game and how there are so many approaches that you can make toward it. You can do little side diversions in all the other Zelda games. There is one game, Majora's Mask, which is my favorite, where the time urgency is literal Mm. in the sense that you have an hour of real-world time or 72 hours in the game itself to save the world. And you're just groundhog daying your way through it every single time. It is antithetical to Breath of the Wild functionally. And it's a game that gives a lot of people stress (laughs) because of that Groundhog Day scenario where you can't do everything in one cycle. This game is you can do as much as you want and there's no time constraint put on you to do it. You can play exactly as much of this game as you want to and not a minute more or a minute less. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's incredible because one of the central criticisms of Zelda games, especially for older fans, is how linear the progression of the stories have been. Hmm. There's some level of choice that you can make at some point, but ultimately you're kind of on rails with more of an illusion of freedom in a lot of instances. And Breath of the Wild is sort of going back to what the promise of the original Zelda was, which was open-endedness with some guide to sort of give you a sense of general direction, but through the modern trappings of video games to really fully realize the potential of the original form, Hmm. I, I think that's incredible. It's got a lot. It, there's, there's a lot going for it in, in its design and in, in its presentation. 
Yeah. And I think one of the other things is like, maybe, maybe because I just don't know a huge amount about video games writ large, but like when I kind of heard originally before, before I put in the game into the switch and started playing like the, the kind of phrase open-ended game or open world games, I kind of imagined some sort of like nightmare, (laughs) Leviathan-esque nightmare where like you could just do whatever awful things you wanted to do and nobody could stop you. And it kind of like encouraged awful behavior. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I, I, I found and loved about Breath of the Wild is that, like, it is a fundamentally optimistic world. Um, and so even though it starts with this this horrific, literally apocalyptic level failure, it is crafted, it has been crafted in such a way that there is kind of like the, the kind of gentle everyday optimism in everything that you do. And one of the things that I love about it is, like, one of the things you can do when you go bump around for hours on end without really doing anything uh, to to stop Ganon is you can go to stables and bumfuck nowhere and help an old man get his curry powder or chase horses around and there's something so kind of aggressively lovely about that like it, mm-hmm. it is you're not going around and you're not free or even encouraged at, or to you know lock people's heads off right and there is no violence except for the violence that sort of has to be done it is a, an open opportunity to explore and to kind of be like your most childlike and I guess mm-hmm. morally kind of not pure because it's a bit weird but like your most kind of morally happy and morally joyous self and that that open-endedness um, just means that instead of going running the gamut from like doing awful things to doing great things you're running the gamut from doing like boring average things to doing really lovely things and the choice is really just about what level of optimism you will kind of participate in sure and i think the game is intentionally evoking that sort of sense of like this is the end of the world but it doesn't have to be bleak necessarily the circumstances surrounding it are certainly bleak the idea that the central premise of this franchise is just kind of the cyclical nature of things where three constantly reincarnated forces drive the environment around them. And mm. this world is sort of kept in a state of arrested development where it can't meaningfully progress past a medieval state because of the embodiments of pure evil and wisdom and courage. Mm. It It is very much myth and fairy tale and I think it's interesting that this new game is sort of, I'm trying to find a way of saying this. It's like a soft reset in the sense of like, we are trying to move away from every hundred years or so, the same three people keep fucking up the same like (laughs) central continent. (laughs) Like imagine like, like how it is in real life where just like Southern senators and their children just keep fucking up Georgia or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Same thing, but for Hyrule. It's I think this one is really trying to make the bleakness definitive like not not mm. definitive but like try and feel like there is a definitive way forward for yeah. at least one version of this world and your actions as minuscule as they may be seem to leave some sort of impact yep and the world is both dreadfully empty in one way but also brimming with life from another yep. perspective there's a little moment where you're able to jump off a bridge and there's a person walking nearby the game will just sort of like activate this dialogue prompt where he assumes that you're going to jump off the bridge to kill yourself when you're just mm. probably doing video game shit. He's like, hey, whoa, 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 buddy. Life's not that bad. You don't have to kill yourself. You mm. let me let me talk to you for a few minutes. We can we can we can work this out. Mm. And on a level, it is played for comedy, but it is a sincere moment from that mm-hmm. person's perspective. 
it is just speaking to the general sense of optimism and the kindness of an individual, even if there is no collective to really process that kind of goodness towards. People are yeah. well-intentioned, but there, no single individual can really rock the world in one way. Even Link, who is mm-hmm. supposed to be the hero, he has to at least recruit four new individuals to pilot the Divine Beasts, uh, all of which have to operate one, and all of them are from a different part of Hyrule. There's mm-hmm. Naruto, there's got to be one uh, Zora, there's got to be a Goron, there's got to be a Rito, and you have to get everybody involved to make the permanent change to get things out of this hell. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I that I really like about that kind of sense of community is like when you see a character like Link, you, you kind of have to assume that that like lone wolf status is kind of an integral part, uh, like an integral and vaunted part of that character. And and that like the fact that they that Link is always alone is it would be portrayed as like a strength of his. Um, like one of the things that I, I sort of think about is the way that like, again, to go back to the Lord of the Rings, but like the way that like Aragorn is portrayed in the Peter Jackson films where like the fact of his being alone um, all the time uh, and his being able to kind of go like hither and thither and do whatever he wants is portrayed as a strength because he's not really, except for when he is, he's not really tethered down by anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of like rugged individualism is, is treated as, a, as an objectively good thing. But, but actually um, in, in Breath of the Wild, Link's being this kind of like lone wolf is, is a very lonely thing. It, you know, you you don't feel like you're going through this game feeling proud or excited by the fact that that you are going through it alone. There's almost a sense of failure kind of inbuilt to that loneliness. You know, I know I know a lot of the like big Zelda fans were kind of upset that like this is the game where Link talks. But I actually think there's kind of something beautiful in that because like when you go to, you know, you cross these massive plains of nothingness, not, not to mean the landscape, but there's no other people for you know, miles and miles and miles and, and you show up in, in these various locations, these cities, these towns, these stables, and you can talk to people and, and giving Link that kind of dialogue option for the first time in the series really feels like this is a character who's kind of yearning for that that human contact and and or maybe not human, but that interpersonal contact and, and almost sees that this like failure that has kind of kickstarted this whole story here is uh, there, there's kind of a uh, not a punishment, but a, a kind of horrible comorbidity of that in that, like he is totally alone, and the four people who he was meant to do this thing with are dead, um, mm-hmm. and and he needs some sort of contact um, because actually being alone isn't really a good thing, and it's not really nice. No, it isn't, and I think the game does a really good job making the moments of moments where you are interacting with individuals so far and few between that you do have to experience that loneliness on a level. Mm-hmm. Like, like you were saying, this is the first game where Link talks in the sense that your dialogue options are less often in the affirmative than in the negative. Like it's thus dialogue options that are just yes, no, and a lot more flavor text to sort of like sometimes for a sense of humor, but like just more than just more than one or two word responses is the general sense. So I understand that some people probably have an aversion to that because Link is supposed to be a representative of the individual and a power fantasy. In one of the developer's own words, like his androgyny is so the person playing the game, regardless of gender, is able to sort of map uh, a part of themselves into that character. Brilliant. But, um, and that's that is that's smart. He isn't the character that has like voiced lines like every other character in this game does, at least the major players do. And that voice acting, which is the first, this is the first Zelda game that features voice acting. 
at least a canonical entry. We don't need to talk about the uh, the Phillips CDI games. <laughs> Gee, it sure is boring around here. My boy, this piece is what all true warriors strive for. I just wonder what Ganon's up to. It is very well utilized in the sense that you kind of need spoken dialogue to break up the loneliness and quiet of this game. It's not yeah. as loud as your typical mm. Zelda game. When you are out in the main field, there's no sweeping score that is making you feel like you can save the world. It's just mm. small piano melodies and light yes. motifs that keep reoccurring. And we'll get to that a little bit more later. <laughs> but this is such a wildly different approach to Zelda. And it is such a, like, a, like a pivot that mm. I can understand people's criticisms of it and how much has changed. But... Those decisions are all very deliberate, and yeah. I hope that people aren't just like thinking like, oh, they're trying to fuck with it. It's they're doing something different and really exploring something on a deeper level than just save the world. You're one guy. Yeah. And I think it also like it makes it makes Link silence when he is surrounded, you know, in the sort of flashbacks when when he is surrounded by other people who are talking and, and like very obviously talking. It, it makes his silence mean more than just kind of like lonely kind of hero it, it makes it feel more at various points like he is either grappling with the enormity of what it means to, to be in the position that he's in or that he really doesn't know what the hell to do with someone like zelda who's in probably the worst possible position anyone could ever imagine being in and that kind of silence i think feels slightly more profound you know maybe that's just me over rationalizing my favorite game but i think there is kind of something really kind of extra intense about it and it also kind of feels like a flip on what the normal kind of silence is where it's you know to talk about some arnie movies it's the the kind of silent or not often speaking characters who are doing that because the only way that they can communicate is through like brawn and muscle link's not really that um link's silence is kind of kind of reverential i guess um but it's kind of aggressively respectful of the things that like words can't reach and that is like nice like great mm -hmm. i love seeing that and uh, i love seeing respect for like and i know this is ironic coming from me specifically but i love seeing respect for the fine art of just shutting the fuck up sometimes <laughs> <laughs> no listen like i think you you said earlier that you know you can't be certain what the correct interpretation of link silence can be and that is kind of the beauty of it. The same way that you can project your personality onto Link uh, because he is a silent protagonist, you can do the same for just this world and what the what it represents to you at large because mm. there's so much space for you to fill in blanks. The game is telling you stories visually. Uh, there's a lot of visual storytelling and then there's the actual moments of where the silence is broken. Mm. But what you do in between those big moments is entirely up to you. That mm -hmm. is your experience. No two people are going to have the exact same experience playing this game because it is so open-ended that it is just impossible to replicate. Yeah. You get at things at your own pace and the game does sort of guide you to where the things that you are supposed to do to reach the end state. Uh, it doesn't tell you the best way to approach any specific situation. Yes. So again, that's that open-endedness. It's your interpretation. There is no wildly incorrect way of doing something if it gets you to your intended goal yep and, and i think that's the other thing as well because like I, I i think narratively and stylistically breath of the wild has a really clear and kind of strong thesis like like nobody goes into this game and comes out of it not knowing what the point of it was mm -hmm. um and yet it's not over like like the point of the thesis of this game is never written out in dialogue 
And I think that is reflective of, of a kind of immense amount of trust that the game developers had in, in, in their audience. And also, I would say uh, the, the kind of immense amount of confidence that they had in themselves and, and the craftsmanship that they were doing in the they knew that they could lay down the foundations for the point that they were trying to make and not need to you know spray paint it across the game or put it up in neon lights. And mm-hmm. they had the confidence that they laid that groundwork well enough and the trust in their audience that their audience would pick up what they were laying down. And the rest of it, they could let to sort of, amb- not ambiguity sake, but like let to kind of like, like you're saying, this kind of personal kind of interpretation sake. And, and that is something that I feel like, you know, sorry to gr- grind an axe right now against like m- pop culture writ large, but like that's something that I feel is kind of lacking in a lot of contemporary movies and TV shows. Um, is that kind of sense of trust in, in the audience that like you are number one, you as like a, an artist are not smarter than your audience. And number two, that like whatever interpretations your audience may bring to the work that you're doing, your thesis is strong enough that um, the, the fundamental point of it will not be lost in whatever your audience brings to it. And Breath of the Wild is so confident in that it is such a breath of, <laughs> a breath of fresh air. <laughs> No, I mean, a breath. I get it now. But for number one, please grind your axes. What is a podcast but us just shouting into the wind and getting our grievances out there? No, I understand your point about the art of shutting the fuck up because like you were saying, like this lack of confidence in your own ability to convey a point and tell a story is becoming a major issue in a lot of big stories lately. A pertinent example of the art of shutting the fuck up is just the contrast between uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and the one episode I have watched of Rings of Power where there is no breathing room whatsoever between scenes and everyone is sort of just talking their feelings outwardly. There's no contemplation of anything. There's a lot of cool visuals. There's a lot of great visuals. And I wish the story was just doing a lot more visual stuff (laughs) and not just like, all right, here's narration all right Mm. here is scenes of people talking about their feelings and exactly what they are uh where they are standing right now and let's just keep doing that more talking more more talking more talking more talking episodes (laughs) over now it like the walking was like the big joke about lord of the rings and i feel like this is going to be the talking there's too much too much saying and not enough doing yep and and i think there's kind of something funny in that in the like yeah, oh, fuck it. There's no non-pretentious way of saying this. Uh, so Jean-Luc Godard died today, the day that we were recording this. Uh, and yes. someone on my timeline drag out a, a, a really brilliant, absolutely <laughs> wanky interview from 1996. So one of the things that the interview asked him about was his his kind of preoccupation with the structure of narratives and, and like and, and how narrative work. And, and in response to this kind of interesting half question, he says, When you become older, the analysis of the structure is part of the novel itself. It's the difference between James Joyce's Ulysses and Earl Stanley Gardner. In Perry Mason, the mystery is only the mystery of describing, whereas with Joyce, the mystery of the writing itself is part of the novel. The observer and the universe are part of the same universe. It's what science discovered at the beginning of the century when they say you can't tell where an atomic particle is. You know where they are, but not their speed, or you know their speed, but not their place, because it depends on you. The one who describes is part of the description, right? And there's a sense of awareness of the audience and the sense that like what the audience brings to something necessarily informs what that actual thing is. Now, I'm going to be so, I'm going to try and be so nice about the rings of power, but there's no room in that episode for anyone to bring anything to it. 
because mm-hmm. it is Gladriel mean mugging and being like, I'm here to avenge my brother in the most boring way possible. It's Gil Gallad looking bored with a shitty wig and being like, I want a Tony Award. Why am I here? It's <laughs> Elrond being like, you people are only here because you watch Game of Thrones. And also I'm just going to be weird and kind of like vaguely Sorkin-esque. And there's no room for any sort of, not like ambiguity in terms of what the point of this thing is, but like any sort of... um thought or like critical interpretation of what's on screen because what's on screen is literally what's on screen and fuck the audience and fuck what they bring to it and there's no point in having an audience because as far as amazon is concerned this thing is never going to make its return on investment anyways and from the minute this thing was filmed it was filmed as objectively as possible and it, it is not a piece of art that's up for interpretation it's a fucking commercial it's a tv commercial and that's it sure i mean there's a lot of just anti-art sentiment everywhere in terms of the blockbuster space and I would say mainstream art in general in this, especially in America, where every act of ambiguity is seen as a, a failure. We now see writers being upset that people are anticipating their foreshadowing and pivoting consciously as a result of that. It's insecure. There's a lot of insecurity about being misunderstood. And I understand that in terms of we are now in a social media age and there is like a very instant reaction to everything Mm. now. That's scary. That's like I understand like it's a terrifying thing to be so widely known and that the act of being misunderstood may reflect poorly on you in some way. Mm. But it is at a point where now that sentiment, it seems like a failing when anything invites you to just use your own imagination or use your own line of thinking and have you look at art inwardly or to have an actual opinion on art besides like how well made something is or how well told the story is. Yep. There's a lot of perception among Americans that foreign cinema or older films are inherently pretentious. And no. I, very early in the year, watched a lot of Ingmar Bergman films. Nice. And I love the works of Ingmar Bergman. He he gets it. <laughs> but I was always under the impression that these works were super challenging. And he does have a lot of like abstract works that mm. don't make themselves apparent from the first watch, like Cries and Whispers. Mm-hmm. But movies like The Seventh Seal or Wild Strawberries, they're not... <laughs> very heady works they have a lot on their mind and there's a lot to interpret from it but as actual stories they're very easy to understand and very easy to appreciate just on the surface level and then there's this layers and layers underneath how he tells those stories that make it rewarding to think about after you watch it and make it rewarding to watch again and again that's what art is it's something that you want to have people enjoy more than once so it can last And everything is now that we're in like this instant gratification age where the outcome of something has to be instant for it to be valuable, that the dynamic is shifting a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is also really interesting in the context of um, Breath of the Wild as well, because I think Breath of the Wild is particularly interesting because it's one of the kind of few pieces of art where I've never like been interested in, in, in like completion, like, like. I played the game through to completion maybe twice in like mm-hmm. four or five hundred hours of, of gameplay. Six hundred probably actually. I'm gonna stop <laughs> under 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 estimating that one. And no, turn on your switch right now. People need to know. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna be good for me. It's not gonna be good. Um but like, you know, the the end game, I played it. It's great. I enjoy the kind of end battle, the boss battle. But like 
I go and play that game sometimes just to wander around it. And I was having this moment where I was wandering around a couple weeks ago and I was like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? What is the point of me doing this? And the answer is it's fun. Um, it's yeah. fun and it's rewarding. And like, I never feel like there's a single second that I've wasted um, in playing this game because like you're saying, because it invites you to think more deeply about what it is and, and why it is. But, but it's also not shoveling anything down your throat. And like, you know, I, I think a lot of the kind of movies and TV that are getting a lot of <laughs> money right now have this expiration date on them because there's only so many times you can have the same kind of hard facts shoved at you because it's all like this lore based shit right everything's fucking lore now everything has to have a wikipedia page otherwise it's not a valid way of doing a story which is right. just a stupid way of looking at the world but there's also so only so many times you can read the encyclopedia before it gets boring um, and breath of the wild is not an encyclopedia like there's a, there's a rich sense of like history and and like and even though i'm starting to hate the word there's a rich sense of lore behind it none of that feels like rote memorization none of that feels like you have to know it to experience it i don't i came to this game with no knowledge of <laughs> legend of zelda at all and i don't feel like i suffered at all for that because the game lets you know more if you would like to know more but it doesn't demand that you know more and it doesn't sit you down and teach you a fucking lesson in this is glup shitto number three and this is zelda's glup shitto it doesn't care it's not interested in that it's like it's interested in the experience of experiencing art the story isn't told through words, it's told through action. Yeah. It's up to you to decide to read into that. It is the kind of game that you get out of it what you put into it. Yep. That's not to say that everybody who doesn't enjoy this game is playing it wrong. But there, but... I need to try it again. All right, well, you said it. But I do think that there is. this is a game that does test how open-minded people are. Yep. Because it isn't concerned with keeping you entertained every minute you play it. Their video games don't have to be slow just in those moments where you're going through a cracked wall and a <laughs> loading screen is hot, is hidden. No, you can actually have like a moment to yourself. Yep. Maybe if you want to, like I do sometimes, use those quiet moments to catch up on your podcasts and <laughs> uh, listen to some music that wouldn't be intrusive to your experience in the moment. Hmm. But you can also just sort of sit with that silence and really try and take in the world and Find your own stories to tell. It's yep. a game of discovery. And yep. that's a part of what I mean when you get as much out of it as you put into it. There's so much everywhere. Yeah. And I think it's also because those silences are worth experiencing. Um, because because the, the sort of detail work put into this game is just utterly mind-blowing. Even when you are kind of sitting there and it's like that kind of Miyazaki-esque kind of silence watching the kind of grass blow in the wind the grass in this game does blow in the wind and i know that's not yeah. really like a, a, a an impressive a technologically impressive thing but there's so much that is technically impressive about the kind of quieter moments of this game you know whether it's kind of the impressive fully work like the the sound that your footsteps make change based off of the armor that you're wearing and whether it's raining or not and what surface you're walking on and how much weaponry you're carrying and and that is a, an incredible detail but also like the npcs react to you doing things in a massive variety of ways and it just that level of sort of like care and thought into the things that don't quote unquote count means that even the silences are still really rich um, and and you get this sense that like this is not a game that was kind of produced on an assembly line it's a game mm -hmm. that was like properly crafted and like it is is a, a labor of love more than like a 
labor for the sake of extracting value. No, I mean, it is definitely a game that is counting on doing more than just selling the requisite number of units, which does bring me to uh, (laughs) my next thing here. Breath of the Wild was a massive, massive success for Nintendo. Mm. It won multiple Game of the Year awards in 2017 against a huge, like we talked about earlier, not, not a weak year for games. It has a score of 97 on Metacritic. It has sold nearly 29 million copies, making it the fourth best-selling game on the Nintendo Switch, the single best-selling Zelda game in this series, and the 25th best-selling video game of all time. So, but we're not <laughs> here. Yeah, we're not here to reduce the legacy of Breath of the Wild to a series of numbers. We're here to discuss its impact on its players, and you've done a really good job so far explaining why you picked this game and its significance to you personally. And I want to ask you, what do you think that this game does that more video games should do? Because so many games are influenced by Breath of the Wild. You see that there's that stereotype now where a person is standing in like a green pasture Mm. on a bit of elevation, just looking at like the world in front of them and taking in the possibilities. (laughs) There's been so many different takeaways by developers about the success of this game. And this we'll get into a bit of what this game is probably trying to communicate to people on the developer side of things later. Mm. But for you and your personal experience, what do you like about this game that you think more games in general should do? Breath of the Wild doesn't fight against being broken. Um, I think some of the best moments in Breath of the Wild come from the moments in which the game itself breaks and like this may be like whether it's like the the sort of engine the the game engine or whether it's just like the kind of idiosyncrasies of how the mechanics of the game work like you know Mm -hmm. the wind bombing stuff and i'm horrible at it i can't do it but i love watching videos of people do it and like and the fact that this game does so so the kind of comparison in my head is like back in the day when they still do these things, if you change the time on your uh, GameCube to move forward and backwards in Animal Crossing, you'd get bitched up. Um, or if you uh, did a like a, a reset uh, to save scam, Rossetti would show up and bitch at you. And, and what that was is the game developers and the game itself rebelling against being broken or not used properly. But Breath of the Wild never does anything like that. Breath of the Wild is never trying to like control, cajole you into playing or using the game only in one specific way and the game often works the best and is the most fun when it's not being used as it was like strictly intended to and i think having that like if more game developers kind of had that sense of faith in their user base and were more willing to just let the kind of joy of things being broken be a part of the gaming experience i think you'd get so much more mileage out of these games Right. I 100% agree with you. The open-endedness of its design and it not being too concerned about what the player is doing because it encourages you know, your imagination. Those slow contemplative moments are meant to encourage your imagination. It would stand to reason that everything you're doing, every minute you're playing it, should encourage you to think creatively about something. So yeah. uh, something amazing that this game does that sort of rebels from the traditional fashion. Uh, traditionally, a Zelda game has you go to a dungeon you acquire an item within, use that item to progress within the dungeon, and then beat the boss, possibly incorporating that item into the strategy. From that point forward in the game, uh, you can use that item to sort of likely get to the next area of the game. Uh, One example of it in Majora's Mask, you go to the Swamp Temple, you get the bow and arrow in there, and that bow and arrow can be used to break down an icicle that gets you into the ice area later (laughs) in the game. Things like that. 
Mm. But here, all of the tools are available to you at the very beginning of the game. There's a mm. small landmass that you are using as a tutorial area that feels massive just to start. And then you complete that area, you get all the tools available <laughs> to you, the uh, stasis, the stasis, the magnesis, and then uh, the bombs, mm-hmm. in addition to your standard uh, you know, sword, shield, however you use to fight and defend yourself. They're all available to you into the opening hours of the game. Mm-hmm. After you get out of that tutorial area, you have basically everything you need to complete the game. It is just up to you to acquire the skill, the weaponry, and the, the health and stamina to make performing tasks easier. Yep. There's the master sword that you need to get at some point in the game to actually slay evil. <laughs> yep. But you don't need it to beat the game. It is just like highly encouraged that you do for yep. the sake of the story. It, it's great. I think it's great that the game just encourages you to sort of approach things on your own. From, mm-hmm. from like the very beginning, of the not the very beginning of the game, but once you know on the map where the four divine beasts are, there's no set order that you have to do them in. You can approach them on your own. You get various powers from them. So when you replay the game, you can think like, oh, well, I would rather have this power early on in the game and then get this power later. That's really up to you to determine how you want to do those and what benefit you gain from it. Because it's just accumulating enough power and confidence and ability to take on the ultimate threat that has been plaguing this world for 100 years. So that's what I love about this game is just yeah. it's basically like, look, we wrote a book, <laughs> read as many pages as you want and get as much out of it as you need to. And then get to the last page when you think you know enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, and that's, I think, the thing that's, that's like, it's just delightful about this game is that. I, I guess it, it kind of doesn't really matter who you are. You are almost inevitably going to get to the end of this game. So the divergent paths to get there is is fascinating. Now, like I am probably the world's most annoying gamer in some ways because I love Wikipedia and everything instead of figuring it out myself. <laughs> I always like game facts back in the day was my shit, uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and and nowadays it's whatever the Breath of the Wild wiki is. Um, but I I don't solve these puzzles myself. Uh, I get frustrated by them very quickly, and I'm like I'm going online. It hurts me to say this, but like, you know, there are literal toddlers who can solve these puzzles in incredibly ingenious ways, which means there are little like literal toddlers who can get to the end of this game and they will do it in such a wildly divergent way to how I've done it that we both technically played the same game. We also really haven't technically played the same game. Like Mm -hmm. we've had such like completely divergent experiences based entirely on like what our kind of personal um, approaches to the world are. And I don't, I feel like I don't really see that with very many other things. Like you can get to different interpretations, right? And I feel like this is certainly a thing with the the rings of power right now that, I, that I'm dealing with, where like you can have different interpretations on things, but people tend to not like varying interpretations on things. Like whether that is like from a, a point of like, canonicity i guess or whether Mm -hmm. that is from like a a divergent interpretation of similar material necessarily implies like a a kind of personal disagreement breath of the wild doesn't really countenance that breath of the wild doesn't let people's divergent experience necessarily be a negative on on the alternate experience right like no two people are going to play this game the same way and that doesn't mean that one person is doing it right and one person is doing it wrong it means that no two people are doing anything the same way and you have to get on board with that or you're just not going to be able to kind of wrap your head fully around this game. And that is, I think, the beauty, that kind of encouragement of like accepting that things are just going to be handled differently um, mm-hmm. is a really great way of doing a video game. Yeah, no, the game is super accommodating of so many different play styles that it clearly doesn't care what you do. 
as long as you have as long as you find a solution to whatever obstacle is in your way. Mm. One notably funny one is that uh, you find out organically through the game that lightning is going to hit anything made of metal uh, because it is a conductor. And you can use that to solve puzzles if you want to. If you Mm. need to channel electricity from one end to another, you can do something as ridiculous as just putting the weapons in your inventory down in a line to lead a trail of metal (laughs) to a specific spot. The game is accommodating of that. It has internal rules and logic that are consistent, and that leaves a lot to the imagination. You see these Rube Goldberg machines that people make <laughs> just doing simple tasks in Breath of the Wild to show off that it become it's it sort of become Tony Hawk Pro Skater in like a second <laughs> game. You're just doing stunts. You're doing as comp- convoluted things as possible to achieve a goal. That it's great that that's possible because it means that the developers did a good job making an internal logic that can be followed and you can use your imagination to sort of test the limits of that logic yeah yeah because it it feels to me like the the game like the engine was not kind of uh adapted to suit the game the game was built around the engine which is which is basically how how the real world works like the the real world was not like the real world does not refashion the universal laws of physics in its own image like the world itself is fashioned by the laws of physics and so there's this kind of immense sense of like vitality to breath of the wild because it's not fighting against the rules uh, that it has set for itself and it set for itself these rules and lives up to them entirely um and whether that is like the kind of wild stuff that you can do with the physics of the game or whether it's kind of the smaller things like, you know, the the, the huge personalities in the game. Like, I love the difference. Um, I love the Moblins, especially. I fucking love the Moblins. They're and, great. Because they have loads of personality and they, they have a weak personality and a sleep personality. And maybe this is sort of my lack of experience with other video games talking. But I think, you know. If you, if you get to a Moblin camp at night, and, and I'm, there's no normal way of saying this, but if you watch them sleep, they sleep in different ways to one another. And, mm-hmm. and that that's mind-blowing. That is a mind-blowing detail. But then you can also use that against them, which is, again, I'm not a serial killer, I swear. But, like, <laughs> using the different sleeping patterns of the different creatures in the game to, like, successfully get your way through these camps is is a level of sort of, like not not reality but sort of like vivaciousness in-game vivaciousness um mm-hmm. that that just like there's no sense of conflict with like the the kind of limitations of this game this game embraces its limitations and then kind of laughs at them and goes beyond them um, and and having that kind of sense of livelihood you know the snoring patterns of the moblins or the lionels or the way that the wind blows in a specific direction up this side of the mountain all of that just makes this game feel so alive and it really kind of helps to kick in your imagination especially Mm -hmm. if you're someone like me with no imagination at all this game actually makes me go oh but i can be a little creative about this when usually i just wouldn't be we, we, we were talking up and down how like incredible this game is at being a sandbox like a true playground of your imagination while also being very thoughtful in how it conveys story themes ideas just to like sort of speak to the the, the brilliance of the developers and helping to realize this vision you, like the purpose of the blood moon in the game is to sort of like sort of like number one it does sort of instill a sense of urgency in the player in an, in one way by saying like oh ganon <laughs> has his little moments of being able to exert his power over this world but in a developer sense, what it's doing is the system memory is just 
be too much memory is being used to account for your actions made in the game, like how many trees and enemies that you've destroyed on the field. And they need to replace those assets so you can continue to like do what you want to do to this world mm. uh, with no consequences. It, it, it functions as something that you experience and it instills a sense of dread or terror in you in a moment, but it actually serves a practical purpose from a developer standpoint. And that's what this game is. It's a perfect marriage of developer insight and actual direction in terms of what are the people who are in charge of writing and developing this game story doing to work in tandem with the developers to tell something that is consistent logically in terms of how you play the game and how it is experienced. And there's a lot of games that do not maintain that internal consistency and the the, the gameplay is separate from the story. Mm. But this is a perfect marriage of that and that's what ma- embodies those kinds of experiences are what gaming are to me as an art form is not trying to make interactive movies but create interactive experiences that are telling stories that only video games can tell yeah and and, and i think you know in some ways it kind of reminds me of of my other favorite thing to talk about which is star wars right because Mm -hmm. like star wars is not particularly unique story like it's actually like an archetypal story right like it is is quite a dull story as these things go the thing about the original Star Wars trilogy that that works so brilliantly is that it is movies done at 100%, right? right? It is the cinema, movies, film, whatever, as an art form, firing on all cylinders. It's John Williams' score operating at 100. It is the magic of ILM operating at 100. It is Carrie Fisher saving the scripts operating at 100. <laughs> and it is the, like, the, the, the kind of like paragon of what a movie is. And, and Breath of the Wild feels like that kind of perfection of video games as a, as a format, as a medium to me, because it feels like everything that could possibly be true of a video game um, and everything that could possibly make a video game unique is being done here. And um, with like a, it's not fighting against the fact that it is a video game. It is aware of the fact of that it is a video game. It is proud of the fact that it is a video game. And it is using the fact that it is a video game to its, its advantage. It's not trying to be a movie or it's not trying to be a book. It's trying to be a video game. And it's doing brilliantly at that. And it's definitely that Star Wars pattern of knowing what it is and doing what it is very, very perfectly. Right. When I approached you for this episode, you settled on Breath of the Wild and... You said to the word, I hold that thing on a level with like the Empire Strikes Back and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon in terms of like perfect pieces of art. So that speaks to what you're saying about it being the most of what it is in the medium, a representation, Mm. uh, a proud achievement in its space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also the other thing is, right, like it it kind of comes at a I don't think like as with star wars right like star wars uh you know 77 to 83 there will be millions more movies that come after star wars there will be millions more video games that come after breath of the wild but the question for me as i go through literally every game that i will ever play now is does this match up to breath of the wild not in terms of like does it look and feel like breath of the wild but is this doing technically and and narratively what Breath of the Wild was able to do. And if it's not matching up to that, then I feel like we've kind of hit peak video game (laughs) and everything else is going to struggle to get to that in the same way that nothing ever, because I'm a hollow shell of a human being, uh, nothing will ever reach the peaks of hearing, uh, you know, hearing the Imperial March for the first time in Empire Strikes Back. Like that is peak movie for me and we'll never come back from there. But it has also bettered all video games to come in the same way that Star Wars has hopefully... (laughs) Maybe, although that influence might be lessened, better at all movies to come. 
Uh, I 100% agree with that sentiment. The impact this game has made on the industry cannot be denied, whether it is in the game mechanics, the aesthetics, and a design philosophy which we have so exhaustively talked about in this past hour. Aspects of Breath of the Wild have appeared in so many games since it's released, whether it's Genshin Impact, Immortals Phoenix Rising, the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn, Horizon Forbidden West even incorporates elements of it into, like it is learning from the competition in a way. Then there are franchises with established styles, even, that have incorporated elements from Breath of the Wild. Like uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus, which is another series developed by Nintendo. It is trying to get a piece of that pie Mm. in terms of trying to crack the egg of, okay, this worked with Breath of the Wild. Surely it'll work with us. And you know what? I really like Pokemon Legends Arceus. I think Mm. they did a good job. And I'm looking forward to see what the next entry of the game is as a response to that. But I digress. <laughs> Elden Ring, which, you know, the FromSoft games were already wildly influenced by past Zelda games. And now it's learning from the most recent one to make its own statement on what an open world game can be. And taking esoteric thought and storytelling into a new direction. Mm-hmm. That's why I love the game is because it is doing the most video game stuff to <laughs> convey and tell its story. It's clear the game has made an impact. Mm. I love the influence that it's had, but no game is perfect, and we always have to do a thing on the show where we have to kill our darlings a little bit. Mm-hmm. What is something that you wish this game did better, or what is something about it that you wish you could change to make the experience just a little bit better? Yeah, so I think the kind of classic answer to this, everyone complains about the weapons durability. I don't care about that. And maybe this is like kind of a cop-out answer. I wish there were a static camera option. Like I wish there were a kind of, cause, because you've got almost to complete control over the camera. I wish there had been some sort of storyboarded version of all of the locations where I could just turn on a toggle and have it pick what the best looking camera location would be. Sure. Number one, because it would make me less queasy. But number two, I would love to see what this game, I would have loved to see what this game had looked like to the devs as they were imagining it, not as in terms of like a 360 degree world, but like what in each of these kind of key locations would, what is the, what is the, like, what is the look of this actual location? And I feel like at points by virtue of it being so open world, there's not a, as strong of a sense of like kind of creative personality, like creative trademark, I guess in it. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like there's Satori Mountain, whatever. But like, I would love to have seen those kind of like slightly more personal trademarks from the devs and also a little bit of the less queasy camera. (laughs) Okay, I understand what you mean. You kind of want a more moments, not not cinematic necessarily, but sort of like shared reality where people would experience the same thing in like a certain place where this game is so open ended, like you said, that you can approach you can approach a landmark from more than one place. Yeah. So there aren't a lot of moments where things narrow down a bit and there's really only one path in. Even the final area has so many ways that you can approach it and there's as so many different things that you can do that are completely optional. It is very open-ended. Sometimes that can be to the detriment of the experience because it makes those like singular moments of just wow factor a little, little far and few between. Yeah. Especially because I always find the stupidest way possible of like discovering things. So I'm like, sometimes I just need someone to save me from myself. (laughs) I understand that. For me, I disagree with a lot of the critiques about Breath of the Wild. You alluded to one earlier and I'm getting to it in a second. But I also completely understand them. 
there's stuff that I disagree with, but have come to terms with the idea like, okay, clearly this isn't for everybody. If it is impairing your experience that badly that it is negatively impacting it, I cannot take that away from you. Mm. It just depends on how you approach that conversation. <laughs> anyway, the fact, that you, the fact that you get every tool at the start of the game is incredible, but it also runs the risk of the game feeling repetitive for mm. some because like you said, you can get as much out of this game as you want to put in, but you also have to sort of get creative with a lot of the tools at your disposal to really mm. feel like you get a lot of, to really feel like you are making the most of them. One of the central criticisms of the game is the weapon degradation mechanic that you <laughs> talked about. Basically, every weapon in the game has a limit to the number of times they can be used and inevitably they will break. Mm. The only weapon that cannot break permanently is the Master Sword, which is the iconic weapon of the franchise. But even it runs out of energy and it takes 10 minutes to recharge before you can use it again. Same. Now, the re- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> And that's getting to this thing that I'm saying. Like, here's my defense for the weapon degradation mechanic to me and why it works on a thematic level. Like I said, the reason this particular mechanic receives criticism is understandable, but it serves a thematic purpose, which friend of the pod, Mark Normandon, posted on Twitter earlier today so succinctly and beautifully. Quote, weapon degradation in Breath of the Wild was an excellent narrative device to tell the story of a breaking, dying world. Mm-hmm. And also, it was cool as hell to grab a skeleton arm and bash another skeleton <laughs> to death with it. Yes. Yes. Right on, Mark. Right on. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Are, it, inside me are two wolves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could, so I. You can do baseball as well with their heads. I found this out the other day. And uh, mm-hmm. like when they're. When you get one of the heads on the ground you can whack it well i guess it's not baseball i guess it's more field hockey and that is some of the most fun i've ever had yeah i really like the shield surfing stuff like things that you want to <laughs> like there's just so much that you can do in terms of gymnastics to get around but that kind of ties into what my personal criticism of the game is which is kind of the locomotion mm. like obviously there's lots of ways of getting around and you can glide and the gliding's great and the I guess this is just like a minor whine. I kind of wish if I could like be really personal about something real quick. I know that the pace is deliberate. I've defended it. I've defended it. <laughs> but sometimes I want to keep running. Yeah. And I don't want the stamina wheel to go down whenever I run. Oh my God. And yeah. I wish there was just like a way to delineate stamina in a sense of like, okay, for climbing, yes. Yep. But what what if I'm just like running? And no, no, there's no danger. There's no enemies around. Can't I just like keep it in perpetuity? Yeah. So there's that there's that just little bit of me. I'm not saying the game's perfect. I'm saying it's close to perfect and it is an achievement in the art form (laughs) and that it should be celebrated as thus. But I can't say that it's perfect. So that's fair. I I think you should be able to like when your kind of stamina bar is or your stamina wheel is getting towards the end, you should be able to like tuck and roll like you can in all the other Zelda games and just kind of roll around for a bit instead of get the full run. I think yeah. that would be like a fair compromise and also make the like Zelda fans who are mad about the rolling being gone happy. Yeah, there are certain things that are missed because it does it is such a pivot from the formula that things that have become iconic in the series since from the beginning, or at least mm. from a link to the past, are just gone. Like the green tunic isn't just the default outfit for anything. And that is such a huge change. But it yeah. is also kind of like the game definitively saying, Look, this is different. We are trying something new. And we're trying to communicate ideas to you about the world changing and your relationship with a dying world and past stories becoming myth and becoming slowly forgotten. 
how was Link going to have the green tunic if there's no historical basis for that? Yeah, or in uh, Kylo Ren voice, let the past die, kill it if you have to. <laughs> Not even, yeah, but um, <laughs> like it is a, definitely a story about moving forward in yeah. a stagnated world for sure. But it is also a story about the significance of knowing your history yeah. and definitely, as the saying goes, not being doomed to repeat it. I appreciate how not reverential it is to its own past, but also is definitively a Zelda game, even if it is so different. That's what I love about this series is how malleable it is. There's space for your A Link to the Past. There's space for just a complete fucking wild card like <laughs> Zelda 2, which is side-scrolling. There's space for Link's Awakenings and Majora's Masks or different variations of the Ocarina of Time, like uh, Twilight Princess basically being a more 2006 take on that same story. <laughs> and Wind Waker just being another version of the Apocalypse story, but with a different open world where... There is no open range and pastures, and you're just sailing in the ocean for what feels like hours at a time sometimes. Yeah. It's incredible. I can have gripes, but they <laughs> don't negatively impact my overall experience, especially since I respect so much of what the developers and the storytellers were trying to do. Yeah. And I, I think that's always kind of the, the mark of like a good piece of art as well, um, because I go through... Um, pretty much everything star wars especially god i mm -hmm. would fucking fist fight george lucas in the street right now if i could but you know jr tolkien's works are, are you know on everything of importance i disagree with tolkien and yet still love his work and can go through and rip it to shreds for how ridiculous it is and still get something out of it in the end and i think like that is kind of the nice thing about breath of the wild is that like it stands on its own merits regardless really of what anyone can pull out to critique about it like which is not to say that the critiques are less valid but like you can critique it all you want um and that critique is only kind of a testament to how good it is because people want to put the effort into critique it instead of just ignore it when it's done sure i mean critique is just sort of built into the zelda hype cycle at this point there is <laughs> a famous sentiment called the zelda cycle i'm not going to describe the whole <laughs> uh the whole image or uh idea or philosophy behind it but it is basically like a new Zelda game comes out and the the impulse is to hate on it as much as possible and then hold it up to the last game which is suddenly now the the gold standard and then every game before that is a classic in some way but that game that, that game that previously came out however was hated at the time yep. and eventually another Zelda game is going to come out and it's going to be hated, and it's going to be compared to the game that just came out that was being hated on. Utterly and exhausting. <laughs> it is a in a franchise about cycles, even its fan base is perpetuating cycles. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. That's the very like nice and optimistic way <laughs> of doing that. And not we just need to bully more of these dweebs into not being annoying about games. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I'm not trying to shield any work of art from criticism, <laughs> but it is just very funny that the more things change the more things stay the same there you go how many times can we say variations of that in two <laughs> and a half hours so far <laughs> so many people have talked about this game's impact on the video game industry including me multiple times in this episode it was a crucial launch title for the nintendo switch it challenged the norms of the open world formula and it dared the rest of the industry to do better uh so on and so forth but as for you em how has it impacted your taste in the media and what you look for yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways it kind of put me on the path to Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways, um, because I think, you know, I was kind of contrarian against, I was contrary about things like 
the Lord of the Rings and things like the Legend of Zelda in equal measure in that like, you know, I had my Star Wars, I had back in the day, I had my Harry Potter and I don't need these other things that are for worse nerds than me. And then (laughs) having Breath of the Wild come out and kind of rattle that foundation of I don't need this meant that I kind of felt like I had to go back and give a fair pass to a whole bunch of things that I hadn't really given a fair shot to anymore. So so in, in that it was good. But I think also in some ways, it kind of allowed me to and this is really the last thing I ever needed but like it allowed me to kind of be more pretentious about what I picked because (laughs) because it set the standard so high but in setting the standard so high it also meant that that standard was achievable because whereas the sort of upper limit for me in video games before had been good but not knock down drag out amazing I just sort of assumed that it would always be impossible for a video game to be knock down drag out amazing to me in comes Breath of the Wild and it sets the bar so high that it makes that bar a reality. And now I'm like, oh, well, I can actually expect this quality out of video games and I can expect this level of thoughtfulness and this this level of sort of coherency. And it's not unreasonable to think that and it's not impossible of video games as a, as a genre. And so it meant that like in the video games that I went to after that, like if they weren't perfect, it wasn't an indictment of video games as a genre. It was just that this one game wasn't hitting that standard and I could go try 10 different more video games to find what would be good for, you know, what would kind of reach up to what I was wanting. And I didn't need to kind of just throw out video games writ large. And then it just meant that I could do that for everything else as well. Because like (laughs) Breath of the Wild becomes the new narrative standard for everything. TV, books, movies, they all kind of now have to reach this, this standard of this is the level of detail orientation that you can expect out of things. And, and it just meant that like this kind of mindset of you take the the slop that is thrown in your pig trough and you eat it and you fucking like it um, mm-hmm. and you wear your Disney hat and are proud of it. They kind of obliterated that for me in a lot of ways. And, and so I will kind of always have this like weird kind of like sycophantic kind of gratefulness to it because like being told that you can actually expect these in art is quite revolutionary in some ways. Like it's nice. <laughs> It's not. I understand what you mean. I don't think it's necessarily pretentious to expect better out of others, especially <laughs> when they have the resources to do so. We talked about Stardew Valley earlier, which is developed by Concerned Ape and is solely one individual who developed that game. He does the music. He does every like everything in that game was his vision and his vision alone. And we celebrate it for that. But the thing about Breath of the Wild is that it is this huge game changer, but it is in the AAA blockbuster space. Mm-hmm. And that is just kind of making it harder for the idea that big things are inherently going to be less good just because there's too many hands to worry about and too much executive meddling to really have a cohesive, strong vision behind it because Nintendo isn't great at a lot of things. I love <laughs> I love their video games, but they there are so many things that they do that they do not have to do and they're so stubborn about. It's like they're still using dot matrix over there. Like what the hell? But <laughs> somehow they continue to crank out masterpieces at a relatively consistent rate. Mm. And this is just a strong example of that. With that in mind, it is just kind of harder and harder for me to justify and forgive the idea that big, big budget things that have a lot of money behind it cannot reach a certain level of quality and cannot challenge us or be better than the standard that they're right now held to, especially Disney, where we are too forgiving, or at least a lot of people are too forgiving of mediocrity. So I don't think that you're pretentious for necessarily (laughs) saying that. It's just like... Like it is a game that is advocating for the collective, but it Mm -hmm. is also a game that is such like a collaborative work of art. Yeah. 
and it achieves that. It, it does what it sets out to do on a developer level. Yeah, it is. It's it's consistency, which is the strength of this game is how logically consistent it is from story to presentation to development. That that's what we need more of. It's achievable. It's clearly achievable in a space as new as video games. Yeah, we do not need to watch works of art regress to accommodate uh, trends or the way that society is changing. Like th- it's not the nature of things to get worse. That is a choice that people are making. Because they either think that we are stupid or that we're marks or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's that other thing is like, I hate to do th- this because like, it's such a thing, but like Brian Johnson, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just premiered Glass Onion and, and got asked a really fascinating question, not a fascinating question. The question itself was stupid and the journalist who asked it should feel bad. Um, but he got asked a question by a journalist, which was basically, how do you write knowing that you're smarter than your audience? Brian Johnson's answer was, I'm not smarter than my audience. And I'm not trying to be smarter than my audience and trying to be smarter than your audience is a fool's game. That does two things, right? That is like an act of humility as a director and a screenwriter, which I think is good. But it's also a, a show of faith and trust in the movie going audience, the general movie going, going audience. Um, and I think that kind of faith and trust that like Ryan Johnson showed in answering that question is the faith and trust that like uh, Nintendo showed for the the, the sort of video game players worldwide with Breath of the Wild and it is a kind of a pa- like compact in some ways where they're like we will give you good games on the expectation that you will not rise to the challenge but on the expectation that that you are deserving of good games and on the expectation that that this is not something that like is not above your level but isn't something <laughs> that would jive for you and the fact that Breath of the Wild is like one of the best selling games of all time shows that people do want this stuff they don't have to just have the you know, the fucking MCU slop. They do want and will respond positively to things that are reaching people where they're at. It's now kind of incumbent on creatives to reach people where they're at. And Breath of the Wild is is just that like remarkable, bright, shining entry into that canon of not treating audiences like they're dipshits. Right. This game feels both like taking the training wheels off of a concept, <laughs> but also putting a new set of training wheels on because... <laughs> There's a sequel coming out, and we'll talk about it in a second. Way. But the way that this just openly defies the, the the convention of what open world games were at the time and are growing out of slowly, mm. hopefully, <laughs> is just like the the constant, oh, look at this thing and like using mini maps and HUDs to distract the user and overwhelm them with so much information so as to ensure that they're not bored. Mm-hmm. This is deliberate minimalism in a world that has so much to do. And it's just sort of counting on you to sort of follow the breadcrumbs to find something. And that takes a tremendous amount of trust in its audience. And they apparently respected that. And now that philosophy is being incorporated in other games like Elden Ring, which (laughs) obviously has its own, like obviously had its own set of discourse over those design philosophies. And there are valid criticisms for the final product. But I do think that this is ultimately a better direction than just, again, thinking that the audience is some sort of rube. And Mm. that they need to play every single part of the game and have every single thing signposted to them. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're just missing out on more game. It's going for the quality route and taking those distracting bits out and just letting them live in the game and getting immersed in it. Mm -hmm. It's clearly more rewarding. And yes, the game does feel simple in a lot of ways because of how immediately accessible most of your resources are. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's like a new set of training wheels on. It's setting a new standard and it's saying like, I dare you to build off of it. And sometimes (laughs) people deliver on it. And in other instances, they're just like, 
all right, we took we took the coat of paint and put it over our thing. Uh, now now the open world game has a glider in it. Like, We're not talking about the gliders, asshole. We're talking about the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, put that on my tombstone. <laughs> yeah. Fucking like, okay, here's an open world game with a glider. I'm sick of that, man. Yeah, yeah. It, it's also like, I think it's a, it's kind of a part and parcel of this wider issue where like there will be something that will break the mold and then instead of continuing to shatter the mold and do things that exist outside the mold, the mold just gets reshaped. Um, and so like, you know, we're seeing this kind of rise of like, but it's not even like a rise because like Ryan Johnson's Knives Out came out, did beautifully. And then suddenly there was a whole bunch of revivals of the fucking Poirot films, right? Kenneth Branagh, who has not have a, had a single creative thought in his entire life, uh, mm-hmm. picked up Poirot and resuscitated that bloated faded corpse and made just a joke of a movie. And now there's going to be like 15 different star studded murder mystery kind of things. And it's ignoring the fact that like what made Knives Out good was not the genre or was not the kind of plot beats. It was it was the fact that it was doing something unique and something interesting um, and having faith in its audience. And the answer to Knives Out is not to do the same genre beats. It's to do something interesting. The culture industry will do what the culture industry wills, but it would be nice to see that kind of level of creativity and and actual risk taking kind of continue onwards. Right. Now, I promised that we would talk about this towards the end of the episode, so we should. Um, There's a sequel. (laughs) We have a name now. Um, (laughs) As of the time of this recording, the time between (laughs) The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and its sequel now named Tears of the Kingdom, is the longest development gap between mainline Zelda games ever. This long-awaited sequel will, according to the most recent trailer, which came out today, uh, which is September 13th, the long-awaited sequel will finally be released on May 12th, 2023, six years, two months, and nine days after the original. Since the previous game was so important from you, M., what do you want from Tears of the Kingdom and be as reasonable or as unreasonable <laughs> as you want to be? No, no limits. You can choose to have like you're like, OK, I understand. Like, I can't get everything. But or you can just be like, I want fucking wings. You can do whatever you want. Like, this is your space to play. in. what do you want from this game? <laughs> um, Yeah, man. You know what? They had those couple bits of teaser trailer footage from however many years ago now and i cannot believe it's been years um where it looked like uh zelda and link were fucking around together and everyone was like it'll be you can play zelda now um i doubt they'll do that i doubt they'll do that but god my heart would be full if you could that would be good um the other thing that i think would be actually really lovely and this is so like mundane it's just almost not even worth mentioning but i would love a crafting system in breath of the wild because i know um originally they did have kind of the bare bones of a crafting system um based around crafting your own arrows uh, and using the different uh, jewels uh, to the the different gems that you can mine in the game to make the different types of arrows. Um, and then they scuppered that. Um, but it's apparently still in the code base. Anyways, uh, I would love that. I would love a fleshed out crafting system because there's like such kind of an abundance of like alive nature and um, Breath of the Wild. And also I think a feeling of that kind of scarcity. I think playing on that through like some sort of crafting mechanic would be just like a very nice uh, and kind of comprehensive way i guess of like building on so much of how the like the interplay between like the mechanics and the kind of themes of the story and also i would love to be build weird shit in breath of the wild that would be so much fun (laughs) Mm -hmm. no i get it 
I forgot to mention this during the criticism section, and this is kind of where I want the groundwork to be laid for whatever this game will become. In its simplicity, this game does take away like one of the great charms of the Zelda series, which is like the very uh, labyrinthian dungeons that they make with puzzles and personality mm. to each one. The Divine Beasts do suffer from the samey effect of aesthetically. These things look the same. They have different things going on and different puzzles that you need to solve. Mm. But visually, it's not the same as like, I'm in a fucking graveyard and I'm riding a ghost <laughs> ship like fucking Ocarina of Time is. Or I'm, I do want more just like tra- not traditional dungeons. I want like something new to be done in terms of navigating them and mm. what kind of puzzles can be explored in that space. But I do want this game to be bigger because mm-hmm. a lot of some valid criticism has been sort of not swept under the rung, but rug, but sort of been like listed as like a growing pain or like, look, we're still figuring this stuff out. Mm. And this is the longest development gap in the Zelda series history. So it's like, okay, you've learned a lot and now you probably have a mastery of this engine. Let's see what you can really do now that you've, now that the console generation is over and it's time for some new toys soon. Yeah. What do you got for me? So it's just, I think my take is just like more bigger, just more dungeons, more visually out there ideas Mm. that's where i said some people say they want like grappling hooks and hook shots and stuff that's a very common thing that i've seen expressed in terms of navigating and getting around Mm. i'm open to that definitely more items would be cool but i just kind of want to see more interesting ways of using items or powers yeah this open world space than what we currently have in breath of the wild yeah I think that's fair. It'd be fun to bring back like an ocarina in some fashion or another to to kind of give it that kind of like, I I feel like Breath of the Wild is not prosaic per se, but it's very steampunk. So it feels kind of very grounded in science. And I think like the kind of ocarina mechanic um, has that kind of whimsical spiritualism about it. That would be quite fun to to see in something like that. And plus the music is so beautiful in Breath of the Wild. If you could (laughs) contribute to that in some way with an ocarina, hot damn. Yeah, I mean... The reason that the game is so quiet is because it is kind of like a quiet apocalypse. That mm. it's not going to do the the bombastic "let's go save the world" score <laughs> when it's kind of more like society has been stagnated and nothing new has really emerged, and it's just kind of like everything is fractured. It's not going to be as loud. So maybe I would like to see not a complete, you know, one eighty on those ideas. But I do want to see some like level of growth. Like Link mm. should be able to play an instrument now that there was like some level of peace time for him to pick up a hobby. Mm. A more complex score would make sense in terms of the fa- in terms of like society sort of being more blended together. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's that side quest in the game where you build a town and you hear the the music get more and more complex as more yes. residents of different walks of life come in. I want the second game to be an expansion of that concept of like yeah. the the building the escalation like it makes sense for the music to build there because yeah more is be- more exists yeah the natural kind of ambiance of hyrule gets louder the further away you get from the apocalypse yeah no yeah. awesome oh that'd be so good i terry town what a brilliant thing i'd love i'd love something like that in in uh tears of the kingdom i'd love some sort of like emphasis on rebuilding because i think that Terrytown plot was just uh, like not to overhype it but just mind-bogglingly good in what it was and and mm-hmm. uh, like really brilliant stuff uh and if if that kind of continued on in breath of the wild 2 hot damn i do love in video games i am such a sucker for anything where you take something that's basically at nothing and turn it into 
this almost like sprawling community. Yep. Even in the most rudimentary sense of things, like when you do, uh, when you build your warm crime factory in fucking uh, Metal Gear Solid V, uh, (laughs) where it's just like, all right, let's build a bigger home base for us to do war crimes in. Even the most like simple, not simple, it's a very complex system, but it's mainly in grids. Even when there's not as much visual uh, rewards from it, just knowing that I'm making something bigger and there is some material reward coming from it and a greater sense of community emerging from that. Mm-hmm. I love that shit. So yeah. if, if you give, give me Terrytown too, <laughs> you know what? Now I do have my unreasonable goal. Make the whole game Terrytown. I want to yes. be able to build a house fucking anywhere. <gasps> Please, God, that would be brilliant. We can dream. I also think it's very funny that the house that Leek just sort of stumbles back into the house that he had before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he had to buy it, it back. <laughs> That's capitalism, baby. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, nobody paid the mortgage for a hundred years. What do you expect? <laughs> a grim. <laughs> yeah. talked about this game and through that we've talked about a lot of other games in the process we've talked about how this game has informed your taste and we have a kind of sense of what your taste is like having spent all this time with you so now we're going to talk about recommendations so my question to you m is what would you recommend to listeners based on your taste or just based on the game we discussed oh boy see this is this is tough because with the exception of like the couple things that i like forced on people's throats um i don't tend to do recommendations because uh, I'm so fucking wacky, do. Okay, um, there's two songs um, by the Scottish artist Dick Gahan. Uh, we'll do three. We'll do three songs by Dick Gahan uh, that I would mm-hmm. suggest people go look up. Um, one is called Both Sides of the Tweed, um, and it hopefully, uh, not hopefully, there's no chance in hell of this, but it could be a contender for a Scottish national anthem if we ever go independent. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of lyrics, um, both the lyrics and the kind of like, not thin but the kind of wispy kind of uh instrumentals in it um feel very breath of the wild feel very in line with the 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 kind of score and the themes uh then there is no gods and precious few heroes uh and that is another banger of a tune uh politically excellent but it's also this kind of idea of like how do we handle history in the context of this song it's obviously dealing with scotland's long and very complicated history and sense of self and like what do we do with these things Uh, and that's that is aggressively breath of the wild and then there's tom Payne's bones which is not aggressively breath of the wild but is a brilliant song Uh, and i think uh, a lot of americans i think we get quite a bit out of it because america is truly dancing to tom Payne's bones um (laughs) So, so there's that. Um, and then maybe this is kind of a bit of, uh, oh, fuck it. The Lord of the Rings Online. Uh, I am constantly propagandizing for this. Um, I think everybody should log on and play at least through to level 20 in it at least once. Because I think it will change the way people think about adaptations. I think it will change the way that people think about like how you interact with stories. Um, I also think it's kind of funny to watch people go, isn't this just World of Warcraft? And then have to contend with the fact that like, yes, it is basically just World of Warcraft, but cooler because it's Lord of the Rings. Um, my firm belief is like Scientology uh, with Lord of the Rings online. Once we get you in the door, you will never leave. 
everyone just do one level and I'm sure if you want to quit, you can definitely quit at any time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that would be, that's my pitch there. <laughs> so my recommendations, uh, because I like to chime in too, some of these are going to be repeats that I gave in previous episodes just because, uh, you know, I've talked about Zelda in the past and there's a lot of stuff that just hits the same buttons for me because Zelda was my formative franchise. Mm. Like I played most of the games and mm. I have strong memories of even the ones I like the least. So it's just like I see Zelda in a lot of the stuff that I enjoy. So this is repeating myself a bit from the last Zelda episode I did with our friend Tom. Hmm. The Ghibli films, specifically Princess Mononoke Hmm. and Castle in the Sky, I highly, 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 highly recommend if you Hmm. like this game. Princess Mononoke is just very Zelda in general. I think you would get that vibe no matter which Zelda game you've played. Hmm. But based on the visual design of the new upcoming Zelda game, I do think that it is very consciously cribbing from Castle in the Sky. Both of these are directed by Hayao Miyazaki. I highly recommend watching these films if you are anticipating the new game at all or being prepared to play Breath of the Wild or just recently played it. Maybe if you listen to this long-ass episode and don't give a fuck about Zelda, but just start looking for a, a cool movie to watch, I recommend those two wholeheartedly. Um, I recommended this in the Fallout New Vegas episode because <laughs> of the post-apocalyptic setting, but it also works here. Uh, Adventure Time. Uh, check mm. that shit out. I mean, it is a boy. It is animal companion. There is the motif of losing an arm, which seems pretty evident in the upcoming game as well. And it is also just like, okay, here is a fantastical, lighthearted story where if you look deeper into it, something a lot more dark reveals itself and it becomes more and more rewarding to engage more and more in this world. And there's also more interesting stuff outside of these core characters that you can really mm. sink your teeth into and be able to speculate on. So those are the familiar bits that I'm just reemphasizing here. Uh, but I did want to recommend at least one new thing. As discussed earlier, multiple games have taken influence from Breath of the Wild, such as Immortals Phoenix Rising, Genshin Impact, Pokemon Legends Arceus. And you probably think, oh, this motherfucker's going to recommend Elden Ring again. Wrong. <laughs> I already recommended it multiple times, basically every episode of the show. So I don't need to do it again. I'm not going to talk about large, sprawling, open worlds. I'm going to talk about small open worlds specifically the game a short hike uh, Mm. which is this incredible two-hour experience that you can play and it has a lot of the sensibilities of like here is an open world space that you can explore and engage with on your own level and you accumulate more stamina so to speak in the process of playing through it you have an achievable goal and you don't need to complete every single thing around to meet that goal but you do feel reward it for just engaging with this beyond the critical path nice it is visually reminiscent of games like animal crossing i am really really delighted by this game i think it's very sweet i think it's Mm. very nice and if you are ever just looking for maybe a two-hour video game session this is this is a great game to do it in highly recommend it a short hike check it out it's on i think it's on most consoles Rock and roll. Yeah, that's right up my alley. I'm very excited for that. <laughs> I, am, I hope you play it, and I hope you get back to me about it, because I do want your thoughts on it, because it seems like an M game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's it for recommendations. Did you have anything else that you may want to recommend while we're, while we are still in this space? Um. Oh, uh, Prey. The movie Prey. 
And oh, yeah. Yes. Big, 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 big uh, Breath of the Wild vibes in that, like, that <laughs> kind of sense of, like, what the what is going on here? What is this weird combination of technology, not technology? Also kind of, like, at least for me, uh, I was not going into expecting to see a brilliant movie and ended up seeing a brilliant movie in much the same way. I was not expecting to go into Breath of the Wild playing a brilliant game and ended up playing a brilliant game. Uh, Prey is just phenomenal and well worth everybody's time it's a great movie i hate the fact that it was just dumped on the streaming where if you just put like a little bit more money into it it could have been like this amazing out of nowhere theatrical experience but yep. i appreciate it simply for existing check it out they should put a throwing axe on a string in a zelda game oh my god yes oh my god yes check out prey full-threaded endorsement from me too so that's recommendations i asked the listeners their thoughts on the legend of zelda breath of the wild and here are some comments that stood out to me at Ham Sandcastle, uh, a.k.a. Jared, who is in the Earthbound episode that we did a couple episodes ago and is in several group chats with you and I, am. <laughs> he said, I'll always remember this as the first game I ever beat with my son. He would sit right next to me and tell me where to go next and still talks about the divine beasts and bosses we battled. Specifically... He loved helping solve the shrine puzzles, and the one I'll always remember is one where you had to get a block of ice through to the end. I couldn't figure it out, and he said, just throw it through. And it worked, and we both celebrated. Uh, I think that's very sweet. I do love shared experiences and intergenerational one where you're basically spreading art from one generation to the next. Is that not what this series is about? (laughs) At Trusty Robot said, it needed a grappling hook and a hook shot. I want rope physics, and I'm disappointed their new game seems to have dropped the ball on that. I don't personally think we know enough about what the new game is for me to speculate on what is and isn't in it, so I'm not going to opine on there, but rope physics would be fun. I'm just, I had not, like, clocked the rope physics part of that, and so now I'm, like, I'm way more on board with this than I thought, because I want to see the rope go swirly. (laughs) (laughs) The rope go swirly is a good, like, it is always... I am always easily impressed by rope physics and everything. I, yeah. I love them. I, I, anything that isn't just like, oh, it's stiff and I can climb it. I'm an easy mark. Yep. Yep. At Kevin Flevin 89 said, Breath of the Wild was legitimately the most profound entertainment experience I've had this century. I still consider a couple of games higher on my mental list of quote top favorites, but also sometimes ponder if that's due to nostalgia glasses. Every time I picked it up during my first playthrough, I felt like I was having a unique experience separate from the rest of the game, and I've never felt that before. It had a couple minor warts, but it's the closest thing I've seen to a perfect video game in 33 years. At Honchcrow David said, Too empty, actually, and the repetitiveness of the overworld really puts me off from playing it after I beat it. Like I said, I'm pretty sympathetic to the criticisms of this game. It is very much like here's everything, go have fun. And it's kind of up to you to find the fun at some point in the game. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not against it, but if you have another take on it, I'm happy to hear from it. (laughs) At reincarnate, very cool and fun game hits the sweet spot of gaming in a lot of ways, not too simple or complex balance of good storytelling when considering the amount of action slash exploration. It's a unique kind of game that gives so much, but still feels like something's missing. And you know what? That is a great way of, diplomatically saying that the game feels a little empty and i respect that yeah i yeah i would do something's missing friends affectionate <laughs> yeah I, I, that's why i'm excited to see what this sequel can do and yeah i want to see what that space is that still feels like breath of the wild but 
expanded on. And mm-hmm. what was what were you doing in that six years? You're using uh, the same engine, it seems like. What are you doing in there? What are you building? <laughs> God, yeah. Hopefully it's nothing Frankenstein. <laughs> no, hope I hope not. I mean, there are Zelda games that I've been disappointed by, but rarely a direct sequel. Like Majora's Mask is a direct sequel to Ocarina of Time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Majora's Mask delivers on everything that's great about Ocarina of Time and does something so wholly unique with it that it feels like a radically different experience. Let's hope that we get something completely off the wall, maybe even fucking alienating to some people yeah. just because of how different it is. Yeah, bring that energy, Nintendo. And this was really fucking fun to do. And I really appreciate you having on the show. If you ever have another game that you want to talk about at length, you are always more than welcome to come back. Before I let you go tonight, I do want to give you this space to promote yourself, any projects you are working on or anything that's (laughs) out. Please, 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 this floor is yours. Ah, thank you. Uh, yes. So, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, my brother, my captain, my podcast. Uh, not to be confused with whoever those my brother, my brother, whatever freaks are. They are the lesser my brothers. Um, <laughs> my brother, my captain, my podcast is the podcast that uh, I do with my wonderful co-host Manu. Uh, we uh, the primary focus is on the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films, but uh, because I have terminal brain poisoning, we also dive into everything else, and we're now currently doing coverage of the Rings of Power. Uh, which is uh, fun, lots of fun, great fun. Um, this uh, doing that podcast is just one of the best things in my life, uh, and I would love it if everybody listened to it at least once. Uh, it's so much, so much fun to do. Uh, and my co-host is to die for. Uh, so that's what I'm doing there and then in a couple months and I should know this and it's such a shame that I don't but in a couple months I have uh, I have got a chapter in a book coming out about the uh, Dundonian communist uh, Mary Brooks Bank uh, so that should be hitting the bookshelves hopefully by the end of the year and you can also find me on Twitter on my public Twitter at JRR tweeting uh, like JRR Tolkien but with tweet instead of talk haha that's where I'm at uh, and I will be doing lots of shameless self-promotion there as well but thank you so much for having me on this podcast this was just absolutely the time of my life uh, and way more fun talking about video games than i thought was possible from someone so anxious talking about video games <laughs> <laughs> no no i look you're a good friend of mine it, i think it was high time i had you on the show you're like i said you're always welcome back uh thank you so much for burning by the bridges for like the three <laughs> most popular podcast personalities in the world um so you know no, seriously, though, thank you so much, as always. If when that book does come out, please give me the link so I can add it to the description in the future. But this has been an incredible episode. Thank you for being here, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I am your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show, and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Breath of the Wild or any other games we discussed, send a DM or leave a comment and I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. You can also follow me on Twitter at Danny Vegito and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at AveryRobinOtt. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as M's. All right. I think that's it. Courage need not to be remembered, for it is never forgotten.
Why the fuck would a superhero name himself Ozymandias? 